Welcome to the Televerse Podcast from Pop Optic TV. P-O-P-O-P-T-I-Q.com. Comedy, reality, drama, genre, and what's in between. Covering anything that's interesting. Yes, geek out on television, so much to see. So Peak TV kills us all. Current, retro, upcoming TV talk every week. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse Pop Optics TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of PopOptic.com, and I'm joined once again this week by one of my my fellow contributors over at the AV Club, and of course one of the co-hosts of Debating Doctor Who. Well, coming back to the podcast, I didn't scare you off well enough, apparently. Caroline is, is Miss Caroline Svita. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah, you you can't you can't keep me away. I'll just always keep coming back. Yeah, that's uh, I, I I try. I, we have these ridiculously overlong podcasts, and I just keep <laughs> at you. Like you came on our Walking Dead podcast as well, which was lovely. Um, apparently, you're not sick of us yet. So uh, over here, Pop Optic, and I'm gonna run with that because there's too much uh, awesome TV that I want to talk about. So I'm just gonna assume you're good to talk just as much as I am about all Always. this crazy stuff. Uh, what is notable for you this week? In, in in the the TV sphere. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of a somber note, but I do feel like, you know, the Paris attacks were obviously a thing on news specifically, but then there were a lot of shows that were sort of readjusting. Um, mm-hmm. So you had SNL this week had sort of a cold open that acknowledged it. I think um, Undateable Live, that show that NBC does, ended up canceling their scheduled live episode for Friday. There's been a couple um, shows for this week that have been sort of had episodes pulled. I know that Supergirl was just, you know, totally coincidentally going to do a terrorist-themed episode tonight. And obviously, out of respect, they pulled that and they've replaced it with another thing. So I think that that is probably the biggest story going around. Um, Although, obviously, that didn't affect sort of the beginning of the week. Yeah, I I just got an email about uh, Legends on on, uh, USA, TNT, TNT, right? Yeah, that sounds right. They're going to be pulling, um, or uh, I think they're just pulling this week's episode uh, for as well, because they tend to deal with, you know, terrorism uh, as well. So, so yeah, I just, I appreciate the sensitivity Absolutely. that we're, we're getting with this. And that wasn't always the case. And as somebody, I mean, I, I'm sure we both have had this experience. Like, I remember watching the, um, watching Buffy and they delayed earshot in season three and they delayed the finale out of respect to, to Columbine for like months mm-hmm. and months. And so, and that was such a, a rare thing at that time. And it was also one that got a lot of uh, pushback from the fan community, but I like that it's become, this has become more and more a thing we're sensitive to. And it seems like there's less and less pushback uh, amongst the more vocal parts of the fan base. And I just, I think that makes us, I think it's better. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's a thing where it's a, why would you not? Like, it's always better to be safe than sorry. And in the long run, months from now, no one will remember, like, the schedule of when things aired anyway. So, yeah, I think it's it's always the right choice. This, we've got some some big TV uh, premieres this week, coming this week. We, we've had a few this, uh, we had uh, with Bob and David, the... Netflix uh, kind of continuation or, or sister series to to Mr. Show premiering this week. Uh, there's been some other premieres, but uh, for, for me, the big thing coming up with uh, TV is the the Man in the High Castle and and mm-hmm. Jessica Jones like all dropping this Friday. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and we we don't unfortunately we do not have any uh, screeners for Jessica Jones, so we will not be talking about that, gentle listeners. We will be talking some Man in the High Castle. Uh, I. 
I would like to say they're both going to do well. I feel like Jessica Jones can't help but destroy Man in the High Castle, in the buzz at least. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it doesn't help. We'll probably get to this, but like, Man in the High Castle is a pretty terrible title. Like, that. <laughs> I'm not usually a person who has complaints about titles. I know it's a common complaint, and I'm usually pretty cool with them, but that's one where even when I knew what that show was about, I still had to keep being like, which one was that again? Which one was that again? Like, there's nothing to clue you in. Whereas Jessica Jones, like, if you're at all tied into Marvel, that's kind of a name that means something to you. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that one's going to be pretty big and hopefully pretty good. Are there any, I mean, I would assume with Transparent, that's yet to come. There's, uh, are, are there any other uh, shows now that, we, you know, that we're getting Man in the High Castle and Jessica Jones, are there any other premieres in the second, you know, this last few weeks of the year that you're particularly excited about or are those last big things along with, again, Transparent? Well, I'm excited to just check out, make some time to check out all of those Amazon pilots that are up now, which will, you know, those shows wouldn't hit for a while now, but I haven't had a chance to check them all out. So that's not exactly a premiere, but something that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, there's there's a few more of those. I we we're going to talk about one of them this week, but I I have not made the time to catch the the pilots. I actually this shows how how off my game I am right now, Caroline. I didn't even realize they were, that more were dropping. So Well, it seems like they didn't quite advertise it as much as I expected they would. Yeah, I feel like there was much more hoopla in in the past yeah, when they had absolutely. them coming out, but uh but yeah, I'm sure that's something that's We'll we'll keep up with over the next few weeks in the TV uh, Twitter sphere and uh, that that delightful bubble that I know we're both in. Yeah, <laughs> uh, where our entire Twitter feed is just television and uh, a few other topics. Now, coming at the end of the podcast is another show that was big in that bubble for me, but I had not checked out. We're going to be doing rather than a DVD shelf, we're going to be doing a season spotlight on the recent season of Project Greenlight. Um, and you were brave enough to watch the Leisure Class, the film that resulted from that. Um, so that's coming at the end of the podcast, and that'll be very exciting. Yeah, I was brave enough, foolish enough. One of those two words would apply. Yeah, Yeah. morbidly (laughs) curious enough. Um, But it's going to be a lot of fun this week. So now we're going to take a break. Again, as is going to be the case, as long as there are new episodes of it, listen to a song from Crazy (laughs) Ex-Girlfriend and be right back with our weekend comedy. Because I love my daughter. That was I Love My Daughter from this week's episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, but we're not going to start with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend here at the top of our week in comedy. We're going to start with t- a little talk about With Bob and David, the new show, the new Netflix show from Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, and uh, talk about the pilot, first couple episodes. Then, Caroline, you're going to talk the pilot of Project Runway Jr., which I'm very excited about, uh, as well as some SNL with Elizabeth Banks and Fresh Off the Boat, The Big One, too. Then I'll talk a little Drunk History, Inventors, and Adventure Time. Oh. Varmints, Cherry Queen Soda, Mama Said, and Football. Uh, <laughs> and also we'll have some Jane talk. I'm going to talk Chapter 27. 
but I'm very excited to hear because you just started watching the show. So I'm excited to hear about that. Uh, and then we'll both talk a little blackish Charlie in charge. Nathan for you. Smokers are allowed. Smokers allowed. And we'll wrap things up with crazy ex-girlfriend. Josh and I are good people. Uh, <laughs> first up though, I, every week I enjoy that. Uh, first up though, uh, with Bob and David. Now, have you seen any Mr. Show? Yeah, no, much to my embarrassment, Mr. Show is just a total blind spot to me. I think I've seen like one or two of the biggest sketches, but I was going into this pretty much um, blind. Yeah, me too. That's one that has actually been reserved for a particular guest on the DVD shelf for, I, I want to say years at this point, but we've had wow. time finding a good time to have them back. Uh, and so eventually it will happen listeners eventually i will have seen some mr show but i haven't seen any i did though really enjoy the pilot i mean i'm not always the biggest sketch uh comedy person it's not always it's not usually my preferred flavor Mm -hmm. of comedy but um but i thought this was a really good and really fun show And what stood out to me was the way that it pretty seamlessly transitions because i know like one of the hardest things you know because comedian i know because comedians say this not like i have any expertise in the topic but um one of the hardest things is ending a sketch and having it uh, you know finding the right beat to end end something on and having it not feel awkward you know gracefully handling ends of sketches i know is uh, one of the most challenging things about uh, you know crafting a, a sketch comedy show and i thought the way that they handled it here was actually really really well done it was seamless yeah that really stood out to me as well and i think that was from what i understand a hallmark of mr show as well where those like it was like all of a sudden a sketch will be part of another sketch or these you know a photo from one transitions to the next and those were really cool and I agree, totally seamless. I also feel like I'm not the biggest fan of sketch comedy, and maybe my expectations for this were too high, but I was actually kind of disappointed with this, which I think just speaks more to this not being my style of show, because what I can tell, everyone's responded so positively to this, especially Mr. Show fans, so I hate to be like the Debbie Downer, but there was something about this sort of stuff, it just didn't feel like fresh to me, and I did laugh, like I watched the first two episodes, and there were a couple sketches that like got little chuckles out of me, but other stuff, it just felt like, okay, let's like move this along a little bit. So I don't know. I It's gotten such a good reception that it, I feel like a little bit of an outlier here. But yeah, this did not win me over in two episodes. How did, uh, what, what are the st- sketches that stand out to you? Which were the parts were that you were at least connecting with or you're most feeling that, um, that, that need to move the pacing up? Yeah. Uh, the ones that I tended to, the, I thought episode two was a little bit stronger. They had one sketch, like an interrogation sketch that kind of ended up becoming like the criminal being a go-between between like almost like he was a child of divorce and the two detectives, he was trying to get them back together. That was really good. Um, like there were, I, I enjoyed the little commercials where we have like the Jewish freelance Pope. Uh, <laughs> that was like just the right amount of weird. Uh, I kind of enjoyed the one about the uh, judge Sandy Whistleton who like has some nonsense allowed in his court, but like that first time travel sketch, which I understand is it's doing a lot of work to try to like reestablish the show and acknowledge Mr. Show and everything, but it just seemed to go on forever for me. And they were like, you know, no last, like I chuckled a little bit at the, at a real time travel machine, but that was kind of it. And that to me, like just went on a really long time. So yeah, that was one that didn't, that didn't quite work for me, unfortunately. Well, and I think maybe we've keyed into the difference in, uh, in our reactions to it, because I would say I was like kind of just chuckling along and not laughing, mm-hmm. belly laughing or anything, but maybe because I avoided reviews and I don't have that connection yeah. with Mr. Show. I just, maybe I wasn't as hyped up for this. So, uh, it sounds like we actually had a similar 
response, you know, when we were watching to it, but, but I ended up more positive overall. Maybe I didn't, you know, I was able to go in with, with fewer expectations, uh, but also, yeah, I would say that that opening sketch does seem like it goes on for a while. Um, you know, it's a bit long, but I, I was just kind of willing to go with them for some reason. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not They're quite sure They're so likable. Well, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and you can tell a lot of times when I'm watching comedies where you can tell everybody involved had a really fun time making it. They, they, yeah. Oftentimes that becomes annoying <laughs> if they're not able to 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 get that energy to come through to the audience because uh, like okay you're having fun I would like to be having fun but I'm not laughing so you're not doing your job uh, I didn't feel that with this instead yeah. I, you know I was a, it felt more infectious to me that sort of you know silliness kind of translated a bit more and maybe it's even just something like I like I enjoyed their opening credits it felt very Python to me and so maybe that helped get me more into the mood of what they were maybe going for I don't know I think I also wasn't thrilled with the laugh track here or like the fact not a laugh track but it was like seen most of it was either filmed or screened in front of a live audience or that's part of their aesthetic that like ended up taking me out of it in a weird mm-hmm. way and I, I don't know why I, I do also want to shout out the um better roots sketch about the director sort of remaking roots that one did that was definitely the standout like the full-on standout from episode one for me, um, it was nice. It was, it it was like struck the right balance between slightly pointed and also just kind of ridiculous. And so that one worked really well for me. There was one in, I know you didn't get to episode two, but there was one that dealt with, um, the I. It was like a very bizarre concept that Hollywood is sort of run by these like really rich imams who also have ties to terrorism. And to me, it's it kind of struck the wrong note of like, oh, these are jokes about Muslim people that I've heard everywhere and you're not really subverting it in a way to just be like oh muslims think it would be really funny for prostitutes to be stoned and that would be the like plot of your movie it it struck a weird note in the way that i think the roots one was really well balanced in what it was trying to do and was really funny and pointed that the 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 sort of muslim executive one did not find that so that was also a little off-putting for me even though overall i think episode two did have higher highs than episode one for me interesting i i do plan to check out more of this um i don't know how quickly i'll I'll, you know push through everything especially with 20 episodes of tv that i know i want to watch dropping this friday um but that is that is certainly uh that's a tricky balance to find for sure and like you said that the better roots um did find that really well and plus of course Padgett Padgett, you know, at Padgett Padgett, I think that's her Twitter handle, uh, Padgett Brewster, who is delightful and becoming quickly one of my favorite people um, in comedy uh, and who just shows up and makes everything funnier. So yeah. that certainly does not hurt. I'm going to talk a bit more about her when, when I get to Drunk History. But um, yeah, that's that's dodgy um, area. So if you're going to you're going to go there if you're going to to you know make those jokes you got to make sure that uh or i guess draw from that well make those jokes that's mm-hmm. terrible if you're going to draw from that well of comedy you got to make sure you have something original to say with it or something that you actually are saying something cuz you're saying something either way yeah but uh, any other thoughts on with bob and david or if not i i got to hear about uh christian siriano and kelly osborne right yep and yep. project runway junior what did you think yeah, so I definitely give this one a thumbs up. Project Runway recently 
previously tried to incorporate kids with this weird show called Project Runway Threads, which was more set up like the Chopped format, where it's uh, just a one episode where you have a couple kids competing with the help of their parents and somebody wins at the end. Uh, That was not so successful. And so for Project Runway Junior, they are now following the Master Chef Junior route, where they are basically just treating these kid contestants the same way they would the adult contestants. It's the same idea that they... Um, have a certain amount of time, they get to work in the workroom, and then they have to present it um, on the same runway, and, you know, it goes week to week, so they're really watching this, it feels like you're watching just an episode of Project Runway, but the best thing is that these kids are just so adorable, because they're, they're, like, really cool hipster kids, and, like, very artistic, and obviously, like, so, so talented, like, you could look at this runway, I don't think you would look at it and assume that this was kids 13 to 18, that, or 13 to 17 that made this, that it looks really professional, but it's just so adorable to me to see kids who are such cool kids, but obviously still such kids, um, so they can be, you know, the coolest hipster in the room, and yet when Tim Gunn walks in, they just, like, melt in a puddle of excitement, and it's so adorable, um, so that is really, really great, I think that this, it just got off to such a good start, um, the only little misstep for me, there's Heidi Klum is not hosting this one. It's another model named Hannah Davis, who unfortunately is a little bit like personality less. Um, but really that's such a minor thing because the kids are really, it's so easy to root for them. And speaking of Kelly Osborne and Christian Siriano, they do like not hold back. They were very harsh on that runway and like not afraid to be like, oh, your outfit was perfect. But um, unfortunately, like these little seams didn't match up. So you should have put a belt here and da 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 da. And so um, like the kids can take it. And it, it was impressive what the kids did, how willing to critique them they were. Um, I also kind of wish they didn't end up sending somebody home this week. I was kind of hoping that because it was junior, they would like give them one week to settle in. But uh, yeah, they really don't pull punches here. So somebody did go home and I don't know if I'm going to watch this every week, but I did, I do think it's a fun one to check out if you're flipping through the channels or you, you catch a marathon or something. That's really great to hear. I still have not checked out MasterChef Junior just because of my just visceral anti-Ramsey feeling. Yeah. <laughs> but as much as everybody I know who watches it says it's amazing and it's, you know, that it, I would like, I'm sure I would like it. So I'm glad to hear that comparison. And yeah, because when you see these reality shows or any really any TV I can think of that uh, reality TV, especially that, that features kids, I'm always going to like the ones better that are respectful of them and treat mm-hmm. them. Not like they are the, this alien species, but like they are small people. They are still people. They should still be treated like people. And, uh, and I get, I mean, any, any reality competition show that coddles and doesn't actually give useful criticism is incredibly frustrating to me. Cause how do you expect these people to get better at what you're, you're judging them on mm-hmm. if you don't give them honest, uh, not mean, but honest, uh, feedback. So that's really nice to hear that, that the judges are actually judging, yeah, oh, for sure. And especially Christian Siriano. Like, I maybe I'm totally projecting, but I feel like I got the sense of he was like, well, this competition wasn't around to support me when I was a kid, so I'm going to treat you guys the way I was treated on this show. And I feel like Project Runway has always been a pretty supportive reality show. It's not one where you have these hosts or whoever who are coming in and yelling at the contestants. So it definitely, like, they're respectful of the kids and they make sure to be very supportive as well. But that to me is just in keeping in line with what Project Runway has always been. So I definitely think that this is a a good mix of supportive, interesting, and just, like, fun, again, to watch those, like, 
teenagers be teenagers. Well, speaking of fun, uh, I'm sure this was a delightful palate cleanser for many people out there. I don't know if you watched SNL last week, Caroline, but a lot of people did. And it was apparently one of the worst episodes uh, ever for the series in the 40 plus year run of the series. Whereas this week they had Elizabeth Banks on instead of Donald Trump and yeah. shock and astonishment. <laughs> Apparently it was much better. <laughs> how did you watch Trump first of all? And second of all, how was Elizabeth Banks? Yeah, I did watch Trump. Unfortunately I got, I mean, I hate to be that per Like that's exactly why they put him on there. So people would watch out of morbid curiosity and I fed right into it. So well played Lauren Michaels. Uh, it was terrible there were one or two sketches that didn't involve trump like pre-film bits that were you know okay as as it was kind of like oh yeah that's like what a standard snl sketch is like but the trump stuff was just all such a misfire and by comparison i mean elizabeth banks is in this episode is just in an entirely different category um that being said i think i don't know i think this is an interesting time for snl and I feel like every season someone's like, oh, SNL isn't as good as it used to be. Like, that's such a stereotypical thing to say. But this does feel like a time when the show, like, it doesn't have a lot of breakout stars currently in the cast. It feels much more like an ensemble feel. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it just feels makes it feel a little bit inessential. Um, and I think at their best this week, they really found a way to incorporate Elizabeth Banks, who is so, so funny and I think pretty underrated. Um, they sort of let her shine a little bit. Although overall, I think that they could have maybe used her better. I think she ended up just feeling again, like one of this ensemble and, and maybe they could have highlighted her a bit more. Um, but yeah, there were a couple standout things for me. They did, uh, they've been doing this tradition of having like the girls in the cast sort of do these like music video songs. And they had another one of, uh, those this week about it was like a bit they were all styled like all white backstreet boys style and like sing it was like i think it was first got horny to you is the name of it and like singing about their weird like 90s crushes which elevated from carson <laughs> daly to like you know puppets like it just like really they they built up really nicely the absurdity of it um, so that was great. They also had Jay Farrell played young Ben Carson, who's like in the 60s, like on the streets of Detroit, but just total, you know, Jay Farrell does a great little Ben Carson voice. And it, he keeps claiming he's getting angry, but, y you know, you can't tell at all from his expression. So that I thought was pretty good. They they did a nice little pointing out. They actually were using bizarre things Ben Carson has said over the years, and they would cite them at the bottom of the screen. Like, oh, yeah, this is something he said in 2011. Um, so that was great. They also do a, uh, a sketch sort of making fun of theater kids. And as we'll get to when we get to Nathan for you, anything that makes fun of theater kids is like always <laughs> right in my wheelhouse. So I really enjoyed that. Um, then I would say the other standout sketch was this weird one called Uber for Jen, where it's Elizabeth Banks gets in an Uber and just has like, I don't know, an increasingly weird relationship with her Uber driver who just proceeds to do all of his errands and kind of ignore her, but then they end up fighting this weird little friendship. It was it was that right blend of weirdness that I think SNL does at its best. So overall, like a really enjoyable episode, but I think highlights sort of the, the weird sort of like blase feeling SNL has had for a little bit. But really nice to see Elizabeth Banks get this. I think it's like, it's nice to see her so front and center because I feel like sometimes she gets a little bit forgotten, even though she is so, so talented. Yeah, I'm a big Elizabeth Banks fan, but I would agree. She's one now that she's especially moved into the uh, directing sphere, mm -hmm. I think it's more likely she'll get more opportunities. But yeah, she's cast so frequently as the girlfriend uh, mm -hmm. or the wife and not really allowed to 
not given the roles that let her do more than that. Even going back to something like Scrubs, which was really funny on Scrubs, but people don't ever think of, I, I, at least the people I know, don't don't think of her, don't know her name when you think of comedic actresses, and that shouldn't be the case. So hopefully it'll this will help, and, and to her having more control over her projects will also continue to help with that, because I do think she's very funny. Yeah, they had a good acknowledgement of her directing like her new career as a director, the cold open was all about, or the uh, monologue was all about her sort of, you know, directing it. And she's saying what a feeling from uh, flash dance. And it was not like the best conceived, but it was such a good showcase of her willingness to just do whatever. And she was literally singing on a treadmill while, you know, sort of doing all of these other comedic things at the same time. And so she really threw herself into it, which obviously in comparison to Donald Trump was a massive step up. Yeah, whenever the host is game, you know it's going to be a, a mm-hmm. more interesting interesting episode. Well, I'm glad to hear it was so much fun. Um, I, I don't know that I'll make time time for it, but I certainly will seek out that music video because I've enjoyed the other two mm-hmm. quite a bit. So thank you for that heads up. Now, how was Fresh Off the Boat this week? The big one, too. Mm-hmm. This was a really nice episode of Fresh Off the Boat. But even more than this episode, I just want to say that this season of Fresh Off the Boat has been so impressive to me. It was a show I checked out occasionally in its first season and enjoyed, but it was never something I made time for. And this season, I am definitely making time for it. I just think it's, I don't know, it strikes such a good balance between heart and comedy. And I think that this week for me was a little bit more on the heart than the comedy, which, you know, is fine for a show and its run to sort of alternate between that. It was mostly about Eddie, the oldest son in this family, having his 12th birthday. And he had been kind of feeling like his house was too strict. So he ends up asking his parents not to have a party and secretly has a party just with his friends. Um, But then it kind of transitioned to being about the mom, Jessica, who everybody pretty much agrees is the, the breakout character of this. It was sort of about her. She ends up letting him go to a sleepover and it was mainly focused on like, how nervous she was, which I think is nice because a lot of times they go to the well of Jessica as the very strict disciplinarian. And this really let us see how rooted that was in the love for her son. Uh, And then there was also a nice little B plot about the two younger boys, the younger brothers who are sort of like the perfect sons decided they wanted to be bad. And so they like left the refrigerator door open and put their Legos on the floor and went to see a PG-13 movie all while their parents were basically just ignoring them because they're dealing with Eddie. So yeah, I would, I wouldn't say this was the strongest episode of the season, but a really nice encapsulation of why Fresh of the Boat is such a sweet and funny sitcom, I think. Yeah, it's had a really strong second season. And I mean, it had a really strong first season too. But uh, yeah, it's, I've been enjoying it. I didn't, like I said, I didn't get a chance to watch this week's episode, but I, I'm up to date otherwise with the yeah. season. And it has been really uh, very well done. And, and that, like you say, that note of Jessica's, uh, Jessica being this, the strict parent and, and Lewis getting to be the, the cool dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice when they get a chance to change it up or explore that a bit more. So I'm glad to hear that they did that this week. Um, next up is Drunk History, which I was going to not mention. I usually don't mention it unless I have something particular to say, but I had to mention it this week because I, I thought it was a particularly strong episode and all three stories were interesting. All three stories were a lot of fun, but the, of course, for me, with my lens and my, uh, uh my, uh, my areas of interest, it will surprise none of our listeners that I was particularly enamored with the Paget Brewster narrated segment that, uh, which featured Parker Posey as, and you know what? I, if I've forgotten the name of the, of the lady, uh, but she's <laughs> got three names and her husband tried to have her name changed, uh, have her change her name to clitoris and then eventually and, and, uh, convinced her to change her name to caress instead. Um, sure. Yeah. 
who is the in, was the inventor of the bra, the modern brassiere, and uh, and fabulous uh, narration by Patty Brewster, as will surprise no one who's seen her on the show before or saw her at Comic Con, where she was uh, San Diego Comic Con, where she was on the Drunk History panel. Um, but she she did a great job t- telling this story. They um, she has. It's the right combination of fitting in the the aesthetic of the show because she's clearly drunk. They, as she talked about at Comic Con, they monitor their breath. Uh, they keep giving them breathalyzers. She thought to make sure that they were legally drunk, and they said no. It's so you don't get too drunk, which was funny. Um, so she's clearly, you know, in the spirit of the thing, but she's also very focused on the story. Um, and so it does because sometimes they can wander into this tangent world that gets a bit tiresome. So she does a really good job of threading that and and having it still feel like drunk history, but also have a uh, clear personality and um, through line to to the to the story. Parker Posey was delightful as and just perfect casting as the lead. She did a really good job. Um, and then the other two stories as well were were pretty fun. I mean, Jason Ritter. I don't know if you see. Have you seen any drunk history? No, a couple sketches here and there, but I don't usually make time for it. Yeah, Jason Ritter uh, is, was in the first sketch, and he's really good at balance. He, like he's been on the show; has been one of the the narrators, or not? Sorry, one of the um, the actors, uh, the re- reenactors. That's what they go with uh, before. But it, this, he, I was really struck by just how how good he is at balancing um, the the physicality and the knowingness of reenacting with still keeping serious enough that it can be funny instead of just being too over the top and wacky. So I also wanted to give a special nod to him, but no, it's when, when the show is at its best, it's, it's just so funny and creative and there's nothing else like it. So um, people who like drunk history, if you haven't checked out this week's episode yet, absolutely check it out. And then the same is true of adventure time. People who like adventure time. If you haven't seen the last week's episodes, uh, previous week's episodes, I should say they're fantastic. And I love how this show is able to to combine very silly storylines with really introspective, thoughtful subtext. So we get um, an episode varmints, which is uh, PB and Marceline trying to clear out some varmints that have infested the pumpkin patch where uh, this cottage or whatever that, that PB has moved to. And um, after being, you know, dethroned or, you know, taking off the ground and walking away, when she got voted out. Um, it, but it's really, and so it's, it's a adventure in that sense, but it's also, it's, it's very much underlining and um, supporting the, the implied relationship uh, between those two that at one point they were romantically involved um, without getting too heavy handed about on that while also dealing with, uh, you know, where, where PB is just emotionally and psychologically after having lost her kingdom. And, it does all this while like having just these silly like scorpion chomper monster thingies that they're going after, and it 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 blends all of that into ten minutes in this really great way. I mean, there's nothing like Adventure Time. Like the, the cherry cream soda deals with the emotional fallout of Root Beer Guy having who's a a a. a uh, do you know Root Beer Guy? Do you watch Adventure Time, Caroline? No, I need to make time for it because I've only ever heard like amazing reviews, but I've never actually checked it out. Um, well, root beer guy is a mug of root beer with a, you know, like a glass mug of, of root beer yeah. with a straw in the foam, uh, who, who's alive, uh, and has a body his head is the mug, um, who died a, a while back and cherry cream soda is his wife. 
and uh, she's been holding on to the 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 dirt that the the soda like broke into oh, God. in a in like a jug or whatever and she she buries it so that she can move on with her new husband starchy and it comes back to life <laughs> and and so now there's dirt soda guy i think is what his name is and he's got like a a reed coming out of his head instead of the where, where the straw was um so it was like again dealing with some really serious grief and letting go and how do you move on with your life and these things that linger while being so silly and in 10 minutes, you know, Mama said we get the King of Ooh, Andy Daly, just being hilarious as ever. And, and, um, and, and, but again, you bring, they bring in Canyon and there's this, this like flying mushroom creature. Uh, I mean, they, there's so much, this show, I love that it can be silly and ridiculous, but I cannot not see all the emotional stuff going on underneath it. That is really so sophisticated. And it's, it just, again, every time I talk about Adventure Time, I end up at the same place, which is it makes me happy that this is mm-hmm. a thing in the world and that there are a lot of kids and teens and uh, young people watching this show. Because I feel like it's shaping a, a generation of more, more thoughtful, creative, and awesome people, uh, as well as, of course, all those adults who are watching it, too. But Adventure Time, I love you. My main sort of interaction with Adventure Time, because sometimes I write up a little weekly um, what's on tonight for AV Club, and the Adventure Time schedule is so bizarre. I never understand what's happening on Cartoon Network. They just are like, we won't show this show, then we're going to show one every day for a week, and then we're going to show two here, and I, I'm like, you know, God bless anyone who could figure out what's going on there and actually figure out when the show is on, because it seems like that is an adventure in and of itself. Yeah, fair enough. I'm very excited about this coming up this week is the Marceline backstory mini uh, mini series, basically. It's like eight, I think, or maybe nine or ten episodes that are going to form one story. So I'm very excited to talk about that next week. But um, yeah, it's it is a very singular series and Mm -hmm. um, very excited about it. Well, let's move on to another very singular series, and that's Jane the Virgin. Now, I'm going to talk about this week's episode, uh, spoiler free. Because, Caroline, you just started watching the show, and I would love for you to tell our listeners uh, what got you to start watching it, first of all, and second of all, what you think. Oh, absolutely. So I, yes, I started watching, I think, like, the beginning of this week. I'm on episode 18 of season one, so needless (laughs) to say, it's uh, going well. Uh, This was a show that I just, is so critically lauded, and you talked about that little TV bubble on Twitter or wherever, and this was one that just everyone seemed to love. And that actually, for me, made me hesitant to start it. Sometimes when, like we were talking about with Mr. Show or with with Bob and David, like when expectations are so high, it's almost like I feel like I'm begrudgingly watching something just because I'm supposed to watch it. So I feel like that was a little bit of a hill to get over with Jane. But I finally, you know, it's all on Netflix, which makes the binging easy. So I, I clicked that first episode, and... It, like, it, I could have gone in with my expectations 100 times higher because this show meets every, like, this might be the best show that has ever been on TV ever. I just think everything about it is perfect. It's like nothing else I've ever seen before. And it's not just the sort of the telenovela structure, which is so fun, but that to me is not even what sets it apart from everything else. What sets it apart from everything else is just how empathetic it is to every single character that even the most minor character like you have it in one episode in the first season there's uh, a call girl who's like basically there just to sort of try to mess things up in Jane's life and I feel like any other show would just 
write her off as a villain. And here we sort of like get a moment to see her side of things and like how her life is hard and she's no longer a villain. And they do it again later with sort of a really rich snooty woman who could have just been a little antagonist for Jane to deal with. But then we turn around and we see her point of view and it, it does that with all the characters. Like I, I just, I tweeted this the other day. I just want them all to be happy. And that's so stressful because sometimes their happiness is sort of, they can't both be happy at the same time because they both want the same thing and they, they both can't have it. But I just love them all so much. And, you know, Gina Rodriguez deserves 1 million Golden Globes. Like her performance is, it's really what makes the show, even the show around her is amazing, but her performance is just, I don't know, it's so essential to this in a way that I think a lot of people are saying about Supergirl. Melissa Benoist is, is the same way. It's like the show would not work without this quirky but grounded performance at the center so I just am infatuated with this show and when we're done recording I'm probably going to go try to finish the first season because I think it's amazing and uh I've been sitting here with this stupid silly grin on my face (laughs) the whole time you've been talking because that is absolutely how I feel about this show and it was when I read the description of it when it before it came out I was like okay, this sounds amazing. Uh, and I can see how for many people that description, not seeing the show, but just even hearing what it's about, like accidental artificial insemination, yeah. and it, like it's like all the thing. It goes that one level far enough to go from grown worthy to amazing. Uh, that, that's That was my first, you know, when I read the description, it's like, okay, this sounds like it'll be the best thing ever. And then to, I, I mean, I take a little bit of, of pride in uh, at least, the, it was the first, review i saw anywhere at pop optic our our season preview last year we were one of the first websites out there to say you have to watch jane um so i've been on board since the the pilot was sent out to people um because it's just such a great show like you said the empathy is i think for me the most important part because without that many of these characters would not work and Mm -hmm. and if, if if they didn't have that core that goodness and that interest in every single person that humanity at the core of the show nothing else would matter it it could be funny but we would we would tire of it um because you know the the jokes would just get old because it'd yeah. be the same stuff every week but because we're so invested in these characters even when they return the well even, even when they get some of the same uh, approaches or, or or lines or threads of humor we don't care because the character's in a different place. And so therefore we're in a different place with that character when they're returning to these same beats, let alone the emotional stuff and, and these relationships that they have made so incredibly rich. Oh my God, um, they're so good. <laughs> they're so good. They're so good. And that's going to transition me into this episode, which is difficult to talk about with no spoilers for you, but I think I can do it. So there, oh, I appreciate it. There's been a lot of, uh, of love triangle drama, as I think I, you... I could tell that from yeah from from previews I saw and obviously just from watching the season but yeah I could tell that was going to be a theme this season yeah so that is resolved at least for now with this episode and the way that they do it works incredibly well they have this visual motif through the episode of graffiti people seeing the writing on the wall and like they visualize you know what you know the writing on the wall as they're talking to somebody and i thought that worked incredibly well they tie that into the plot with one of the the main minor characters uh or like who just pops up for an episode and and that again also works very well it's it's the the answer that they come to and the the honesty of it it's one of those um 
incredibly affecting moments and uh, I don't want to give too many more descriptors because that'll give things away for you. So listeners, you know what I'm talking about. Um, And it, again, it all comes back to a place of heart and of um, respect for the characters and respect for where they're at. I love that usually on on, on Love Triangles, uh, on shows that have long, Love Triangles where that is the central part of the show, if not the central part and important part of the show, um, it's very easy to get tired of it and to, to feel the constraints of the show where they, you can feel the writer saying, well, we can't get so-and-so together until this point because we need that to be our sweeps episode or... Um, we're going to get this character together, but then we know we're going to break him up in five episodes. So we had to start, you know, it feels very manufactured. And that has been one of like the minor complaints I've had about Jane at various points. Um, just because, you know, no show is perfect. The show's really close sometimes, (laughs) but no show is perfect. Um, however, the way that they handle this latest development in Jane's romantic life and this, choice that she makes um while it could and probably should feel like that uh it really really didn't because of the legwork they have done with all of the characters not just her um but but i mean you know that they're still around michael and raphael Mm -hmm, yeah Uh, so so the work that they have done to get raf to where he is and to get michael to where he is um makes what happens in the episode really work for me uh and i hope that they're able because i don't know how long-term sustainable this love triangle or any love triangle on this show is just because i get exhausted and i want to to come back to that core of humanity and heart and uh that for me is so essential to the show Uh, but for now i think they've they've found a good solution and um it's going to be it's going to be interesting as well, I'll say, I really like the Raph and Louisa stuff we get this week as well, um, which is not always a part of the show that, that works for me. Um, and I have, there's some violin playing. So I have to say, uh, <laughs> very glad that they went with um, Granary. Uh, Petra plays the violin, we find out. And, uh, and, and Milos, have you met Milos? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, Milos uh, gave her a Granary, she says. And, and for those who don't know, uh, every, those who are listening probably have heard of Stradivarius before. Guarneri and Stradivarius are the two, generally said, the two greatest violin makers and violins, uh, you know, families of violins in the world. And so I just love that they went with Guarneri instead of going with Stradivarius, which would have been the much more uh, famous, I guess, easily recognizable choice. But uh, anybody who knows you know instruments and knows classical music knows that Guarneri that's just as meaningful as Stradivarius um so I like that they there's a little extra element of flavor there with that choice and also uh the fake violin playing is very fake um however (laughs) however I have to give I don't know how to say her name uh Yale Yale uh grab a glass uh a lot of credit because her left hand posture actually looks really lovely I would be very surprised if she's not uh, someone who has spent a significant amount of time playing the violin or viola or something because her left hand posture looks fabulous. Um, so if you're not a violinist uh, at, at some level, actress who plays Petra, uh, <laughs> significant props. But uh, if she is someone, if she can play the violin, I don't know why they didn't just have her play the violin because other stuff does not look great at all. Um, so I don't know 
what's up with that? But uh, the shots of her when she's holding the violin, she's got her hand up in, in like third position. She's doing some harmonics and things. Um, when she's not actually playing, looks really great. So uh, I, I, it's yay, yay. <laughs> I would just like for them to do it a little better. Like I don't know why they if they can do it that part that well. I don't know why they can't do all of it. <laughs> so that is weird. It's a little weird, but uh, props where it's due, and um, it, it's a fun extra element for me, of course, as a violinist. So that's where I, that's that's my last thought on Jane this week. Do you have any final thoughts? Any hopes? Well, I just want to say thank you for talking around the spoilers because now I am so like ner- hearing you talk about that. I got so nervous because I do feel like I'm invested in how this love triangle plays out, even though it has been a roller coaster for me. Let me tell you, I do think that so far what I liked about the the love triangle and obviously I don't know the the full end of it yet but um it's the show's done a good job of sort of like I'm always with Jane so like when Jane is first um sort of starting to like feel like she might like Raphael I really like him and now I'm in a part of the season where she's thinking maybe they aren't such a good pairing and so then I'm with her like they've done a really good job of treating both Raphael and Michael sort of as fully flawed humans and then sort of highlighting the flaws when they need to and highlighting the strengths when they need to. And so that for me has kept it from feeling like too repetitive. And now I'm so anxious to see how it all wraps up. Um, so currently with where you are in the season 18 episodes in, yeah. do you have a team? Uh, well, Besides, obviously we're both team Jane, but uh, so team Jane, I think right now I'm team Michael, which admittedly like that's what the show, I think we're, we're in a place where we're highlighting a lot of Raphael's flaws and I do, but I don't know, sometimes I'm like, oh, and he has so much money, that would be so easy. But I think the show is making the argument that sometimes opposites do not attract. And I think I'm on board with that argument. So I think right now I'm Team Michael. But again, my opinion has changed so many times, it could very well change again but before <laughs> I finish this season. Fair enough. Well, I uh, expect many a tweet. Yeah, I'll keep you updated. When, when you, as you continue and uh, just when you get to the finale, appreciate that you don't have to wait all summer to watch okay. the next episode because it ends on a doozy of a cliffhanger, as oh, I'm boy. sure you could expect. Um, let's move on to our next show, and that's Blackish, Charlie in Charge. Uh, I think one of my favorite things, developments on, on Blackish over the past, like the the back part of, of season one, but definitely in season two, is that they've just made Diane like crazy. Not crazy, yeah. but like Amazing. evil. <laughs> and it's what, Amazing I, and evil. Charles and, uh, and Diane's... Uh, uh, enmity and mm-hmm. uh at least on his end respect like he gives her the dis- her her distance and he respects her as an adversary is one of my favorite things on the show right now blackish really abc in general is great at casting child actors that's what i really i appreciate that on fresh off the boat i appreciate that on trophy wife which r.i.p trophy wife um and I think Blackish is no exception. Like the kids on this show are great, and the actress that plays Diane is, maybe is the best of them all. Although really, they're all they're all so solid in their own ways. How? What did you think of this episode? It was a weird one. I enjoyed it. It's fun. It's like a little bit, I think, kookier than Blackish usually is. Mostly because there was. I feel like a lot of times there's like a solid A plot that's like somewhat ridiculous, and then maybe a really heightened B plot. And this was just kind of like two things that both felt like slightly underdeveloped B-plots that just split the episode where we have um, Dre and Bo and Zoe going to visit Brown and then Dre accidentally asks 
Charlie instead of their regular babysitter Charlotte to babysit the kids. And somehow Junior ends up like reenacting Nancy Myers films with Charlie. And it was that part, I think, was the strongest for me just because the Nancy Meyer runner or that idea was just so unexpected and bizarre. And they like really committed to it. Um, and then the brown stuff felt like like four ideas that were all not fully formed that they sort of threw together. And so I enjoyed watching it. I don't think it's like this would be a great intro to Blackish for anyone, but I kind of like to see the show get a little bit weird like this. Yeah, and the um like just the outfit, the white turtleneck and everything. So good. Just talk about your kitchen a lot. See emailing <laughs> with your architect like I, I really the enjoyed farmhouse sink. Yeah, that 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 runner, uh that through line, as you said. Um this stuff at, at Brown also I think works for me and I, I continue to enjoy the way that they are transitioning um, some of these characters and you know, we'll see what happens. I would be very surprised if she ends up there just because I expect them to want to keep the actress on yeah. the show. But, um, th- I th- you know, it's, it's an interesting and, and fun episode and certainly an easy way. To, I think it felt more like they needed a way to get the parents out of the house yeah. so, so they could have Charlie babysit. Um, and, and for the most part it works. And I definitely just got so much enjoyment out of junior and Charlie's interactions as well as Diane and Charlie's interactions that I'm, I'm good with it. So yeah, I don't think it's one of the best of the season. Certainly like for me, the highlight of the season remains the, uh, the word. Mm hmm. But uh, it was it was a really still a really a really fun episode for me. Um, now, what did you think of Nathan for you? As I understand, uh, you don't always is this like one of your first times watching Nathan for you, or have you seen it before? Yes, this is literally my first time watching Nathan for you. I've kept up with like some of the things he's done, so I like am aware of what dumb Starbucks is, and I've read about some of the other um, pranks or setups, whatever we want to call them. But this was this is my first time jumping in because I've just heard kind of like with Jane the Virgin, I've just heard so much good buzz. And I was kind of like, okay, finally time to start. This seemed like as good a time as any. And I'm so glad I did because I just thought this episode was like incredible, hilarious, existential, like weirdly moving um this week he is trying to skirt anti-smoking laws and so he using theater a theater loophole theater law uh he like sets up this bar puts two seats in and just stages you know has the people that are in the bars if they're in a play and then like the the best part of all for me because that idea is fun but the like the turn of the episode is when the two theater patrons that he had invited, like, really enjoyed the play, which I just thought was such a great commentary on, like, how ridiculous theater people are. But, you know, they were like, oh, it was, it was nothing, but it was so profound, and it was very Sam Shepard. And so he just reenacts that random night at the bar to, like, excruciating detail, and watching the two play out at the end when they sort of do the side-by-side footage was incredible. And, yeah, I thought this was, like, so funny, so beautifully structured which is really what was a surprise to me I kind of thought that this would you know like just kind of wrap up at the end somehow but we get this like all of a sudden at the end when he brought in the the second Ellen to sort of when the when the original bar owner like rejects him at the end it was like that was terrible and then he brings in the actress he hired to play her to like give him compliments at the end and it spoke to this whole idea of casting real life as other people and it called back to the bizarre scene where he's making the actress say I love you a million times and and like what is reality and I was not expecting it to all wrap up so neatly and that to me was just masterfully done and I was just laughing so hard when that happened yeah it was 
this was a funny one because I uh, I was watching on the weekend uh, and I, I I watched it and my mom was around. She watched part of it and uh, she was like, when when he goes over to t- to to tell Ellen that he's recast her, basically, yeah. uh, she's like, what's going? Like this guy's a jerk. That's so mean. Like that kind of like. And so the way that this. And I was trying to describe to her because she's never seen the show. She has never heard of Nathan Fielder before. Um, and she just saw like a couple minutes here and, and, you know, she couldn't get it. And I was trying to describe it. And it's really hard to describe yeah. somebody who doesn't um, who doesn't have a background in that sort of just incredibly committed comedy character, you know, incredibly committed to character kind of comedy. And where the line who who knows where the line between Nathan yeah. Fielder and and Nathan on Nathan for you is. Um, but it's just, it is, it tells a really, uh, effective story from the start of the episode to the end of the episode. And parts of this feel very much in keeping with what the show usually is. And parts of it, uh, this feels like a very specific and probably like of the episodes I've seen, I think this is one of the best. Uh, no, I think this is definitely the best episode I've seen of the show. Because usually it doesn't have that through line of that realness with the I love you again scene. And then when mm-hmm. that comes back at the end, that like that went to another level for me with this show. Um, usually it's more like what we get at the beginning with this, with setting up the, the the loophole and then the two seats. And that is normally where I feel like most episodes would leave things. And so then to take it to this personal space and this really um, this emotional side of things it is is a new a new realm for me for with the show because again there's still a lot of the earlier seasons i haven't seen but i've seen all of this season and um it's again there's nothing like it yeah no it's so niche like this might be the most like specific show on tv i feel like this is something you are either gonna get it and love it or this is not your style of comedy at all and like you're saying it's like hard to explain why it's funny if it's not inherently funny to you. But I'll also say that I'm, I was a theater major in college, like, and did theater for most of my, my childhood and youth. Um, and this spoke so specifically to every theater experience I've ever had. So I also do sort of wonder how this specific episode would play for people that don't have that theater background. Cause I mean, that, that, I, that, that um, thing they do where the, he's just making the actress say, I love you. Like, I'm pretty sure I did that in theater in acting classes over the years. Like, the, mm-hmm. all of this was, like, so close to home in the best way possible. And the way you can watch this footage of literally nonsense of people sitting in a bar and be like, oh, it's so moving. It really reminds me of John Patrick Shanley. And, oh, it was really, you know, Shepherd-esque. Like, just the way that theater people can make anything pretentious was just so well identified here. Uh, yeah, I expected this to be an episode much more about smoking and it ended up being about theater. And so I'm really glad this was my entry point because just as I mentioned before, making fun of pretentious theater is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, I literally wrote in my notes in all capitals, in all caps, this speaks to so much of my theater major life. And that's just, uh, yeah, just incredible. Well, and I love, because they definitely are, are having some fun with the pretentious theater people, but they also let them be insightful Mm -hmm. in a way that is also really great. It's like, well, maybe we should treat more of our life like we were watching a play and we'd actually be seeing the people around us too. So I like how they, they absolutely are happy to ridicule the theater patrons who see meaning in everything. Uh, But they also then like when they, when the, the theater teacher 
is talking about the different things she sees when she looks at the bar and like, oh, this person looks really lonely and maybe they are, or maybe they're just tired from a long day. Like, I like that it, that when you, it views it through that context as well. So it makes mm-hmm. them ridiculous, but it also says maybe we're the ridiculous ones for not being able or willing to see that emotion out in the world and see what is maybe actually happen, happening with people. So it's, again, it balances these really disparate ideas um, and, and really, uh, like you say, very niche and very thoughtful ones. And at the yeah, same time. It, it feels open hearted. It doesn't feel like this is really being made at the expense of anyone, which I think is nice. And it's nice that Ellen, the bar owner is like, she's so hesitant the whole time. So it doesn't feel like, Oh, it's making fun of her. Cause she's, you know, so dumb that she thought this would work. Like you can tell she's kind of like, this sounds like a terrible idea, but I'm on a show. So I'll just say yes. And, and I think that that helps. It doesn't feel mean spirited, which is mm-hmm. really nice. And I think the part that made me laugh the most was when Nathan is first trying to recruit smokers and he's like, Oh, you know, you can smoke in this other bar. And the person goes, Oh, is it a loophole? And he said, Yeah. And he says, What's the loophole? He says, Theater law. And the guy goes, Oh, yeah. Okay. I said, That's just the thing. <laughs> like it was a great observation that if you say something with enough confidence, the other person will assume they're supposed to have heard of it and they'll just like go along with it. Yeah. So- that really made me laugh. Speaking of confidence, let's move to our, our last show of the week in comedy and reality. And that's crazy. Ex-girlfriend. Anything. Just not yeah. good people. Uh, and the, the, the confidence of this show, because I, again, sort of like, um, you're the worst last week, which I'm not talking about here, but I'll talk about you're the worst uh, next week a bit. But, um, here, the confidence of, of this episode, I, I love that they take Rachel, they fir- take her that step further in this episode where she goes to plant money in person's car. Uh, like, like that's, that's a crazy person thing to do. Um, and, and it still walks it back. Like she, I like, I like when the show doesn't try to just have her be wacky, but also keeps her relatable. Um, and I think so you can understand what she's doing, if not necessarily why she's doing it or, or not agree with her decision to do it. So like having those little flashbacks to her, as a kid and, and, uh, the fabulous Tova Felcha off screen, uh, berating her is so informative and so enlightening. I love that they make time for that. Uh, how, how are you feeling with, about the show and with its handling of that central character? Yeah, I love this show and I actually wasn't quite as high on the pilot as I think a lot of people were, but it was really those next couple episodes that won me over. And I think I totally agree with you that like, it's, it's the specificity specificity that's how you say that word of the Rebecca character that like is so relatable even when she's doing these bizarre things it's like a very heightened world it still like comes from a place of insecurity that I think is incredibly relatable and so even if I have not personally you know shoved a whole chicken down my um, garbage disposal like I understand the impulse of like oh I'm doing a bizarre thing for a bizarre reason and I'm sort of self-aware of it but doing it anyway so I think that it's so like she is so smart with her observations of the world and how you can just tilt them a little bit uh, so yeah, I am totally on board with this show. I don't think, I feel like this has been my sort of refrain this episode. I don't think this was the best episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but it was super enjoyable. And I'm, I'm so glad the show exists. I wish it was finding a bigger audience because I think it's really special. Yeah, I would still say that last week's episode is, for me, quintessential. Agreed. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's what this show could be. And what I said last week was that that episode 
felt like a musical mm-hmm. and and many of the other episodes have felt like a show that has songs and yes. this this week feels like a show that has songs uh, as much as I enjoyed as someone who has never ever gotten daddy daughter dances and always thought they were super creepy <laughs> uh, I, I I really enjoyed I love my daughter um, the I'm a good person sort it works way better in context than it does as a standalone yeah, song uh, but still that was a bit that one was more um, forgettable for me. But um, again, this is an episode that has songs, but I still enjoyed this episode and um, I still look forward to, I think that they'll be able to create that capture, that magic of the previous episode again. Uh, I don't know if they will, but I think it's possible. So I look forward to watching them continue to tease these, these threads out. Um, But, but yeah. And can we just have a moment for, for, uh, Father Bra, Bra. <laughs> uh, I loved Father Bra so much, and like it was actually kind of related to Jane the Virgin, which I think it's so nice when religion is presented posit like in a positive way in a comedy. And I feel like that actually religion is so often the butt of the joke. And it was nice here that like it's funny that he's Father Bra, but he's still like doing a good job as a priest at the same time. It made religion very relatable. So yeah, I thought that was all so funny and great and. I was listening to, I think it was the Vulture TV podcast. They were talking about diversity on TV. And they just made the really good point that Josh is a like a type of Asian-American character that you don't see on TV a lot. And that not only is he the object of desire, which is cool in and of itself, but also he's just allowed to be like a stupid dude. And usually, I don't know, you, feel, you have stereotypes of Asian people being really smart or something. But he just gets to be this like stupid bro. And I thought that was really well highlighted this week. Uh, you know, his excitement over having created the father bra nickname and his, I don't know, his like trying to work through all of his feelings for Rebecca. It was all just really great. And, and I'm not sure that actor is always the strongest part of the series, but I thought Josh was very well used this week. Yeah. And even just like having it be father bra, be, be uh, Asian American mm-hmm. too. Like this is a much more diverse and uh, interesting cast than a different version of the show or, mm-hmm. or a more typical version of this premise would cast. And I love that. Yeah. All around. It's just, it's great. I really, I really, really do like the show. I'm really rooting for um, Rachel, the actress to just, I don't know, have a good life. <laughs> I just, <laughs> both the actress and the character. I'm wishing success on them. And, and it's nice because it's different than like with Jane, the character is so, likable and the things she does she's always like trying to do the the right thing and so that's why I'm rooting for her whereas here Rebecca is like really making terrible choices like pretty much every week and yet I'm still rooting for her as well and it's cool that we can have both of those types of characters on TV and they can both be likable but in such different ways and my last thought on this episode is I just I loved Paula's storyline yeah so much and uh just shut garbage face (laughs) who hasn't wanted to say that at some point oh so good uh yeah there's a lot of fun having a lot of fun with with crazy ex-girlfriend and i it's one of those shows that i it's like the first thing i go to on my dbr yeah me too yeah well what wins the week in comedy for you i'm gonna give it to nathan for you just because so out there and again that theater thing really elevated it for me well, since you gave it to Nathan for you and it got already got some love, I'm going to give it to Jane because uh, of the feels. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and also uh, Brett Deere does a flip, which is totally sweet. I love that they just incorporated that um, when they add 
little bit. Like, I didn't even talk about uh, uh, Britney Spears was on this episode. Uh, oh, the plot wow. with Rogelio. And it worked pretty well. And uh, there, so then there's just like a dance break where, where, uh, where Jane dances with Britney. Oh, amazing. Because the show can do that. I, I've said it all. I'm not going to say anything else. We're all getting to spoiler territory and we're not doing that this week. So uh, that wraps up our week in comedy and reality. And so we'll take a break and come back with our week in drama. drama we're going to talk a bit about good girls revolt which is one of the new amazon pilots as well as caroline you're going to catch us up on law under svu melancholy pursuit i'm going to talk a little leftovers a most powerful adversary and then we'll wrap things up with gray's anatomy something against you so uh, i haven't watched gray's in forever i haven't watched svu in forever so i'm really looking forward to catching up with these shows i'm bringing back the network dramas for you this week absolutely uh, but first before we get to those we're going to start with our one of the amazon pilots so not network drama. What did you think of Good Girls Revolt? Uh, I really liked this pilot. I'm really, really hoping it gets picked up to series. It's about um, female researchers at a at a at a magazine or a newspaper in the 1960s, and sort of like the awakenings of the of uh, the feminist movement, second wave feminism in the 60s. And I think it avoids a lot of traps that a show like this could fall into. And weirdly, the the show I kept thinking of in reference to this is Agent Carter, which is obviously mostly trying to be like a fun superhero spy show, but also had this underlying of office sexism as sort of part of its identity. And that show, because it's a comic book property, is like, it's very blatant with its sort of depiction of sexism. And it's always sort of the guy that's like, hey, let's get out of here, give me some coffee. And like, it's you're like, okay, that's not quite how it worked. And you're, you're sort of heightening it to for whatever to make it more obvious but the thing about sexism that's so frustrating is how subtle it is and i think good girls revolt is far subtler with its depiction of sort of how women are treated in the workplace and and how they end up doing sort of the majority of the work as researchers on these stories essentially even writing the stories themselves but because this newspaper doesn't want to publish with female names they'll give it to a reporter a male reporter to do a pass on it and then their name gets on it and how the women are still like somewhat complacent in the system and and they're they're still trying to do the best they can with their job even though they're not really getting any public credit for it and um we get Nora Ephron is a character in this and she sort of comes in and shakes things up and sort of awakens a lot of eyes which if there's anything about this pilot that I think is a little weird it's like Nora Ephron is like less of a character and more like a fairy godmother (laughs) just going around (laughs) and being like sexism exists everyone open your eyes but for you know for a pilot I think that mostly works um and yeah, I really like how there's so many different female characters, which is something else I had struggled with with Agent Carter. We sort of had one inroad to sort of what sexism is like and how women respond to it. But here you get a whole bunch of different 
perspectives on that. And you have a hippie who's really pushing against it. And you have a way more traditional woman played by Anna Camp, who's like probably not as aware or concerned about it. And it's just nice to get all of those different perspectives. So it doesn't feel like here's the one way we all deal with sexism. It feels far more nuanced than that. So yeah, I was really into this. And I'm, I'm curious to hear if you were as well. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And like, it didn't feel like a pilot. I mean, it feels it's very piloty in some ways. Absolutely. But it didn't feel like, oh, I wonder if this will get made. It felt like, okay, that's the pilot. Now where's the second episode? Yeah, like, exactly. It feels, it's very assured. Whereas some of these, uh, some of these pilots that get made, um, for the Amazon, like pilot, like the batches of them feel very, are we sure about this? Uh, this is very self-assured. Um, it helps that it's full of a cast of, of actors that I love and have enjoyed for many years in various projects. Uh, so you already mentioned several of them, but having, um, you know, Emily, Emily Kinney comes, uh, comes up here. She's one of the, the main characters. I uh, really enjoyed her on Masters of Sex this past season, as well as um, towards the end of her run when she was actually given things to do on Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, and, and even just, you know, some of these other actors in the, in the role, I mean, I agree. Uh, Nora Ephron is is there as the role of enlightening um, fairy godmother, uh, but um, yeah, she does seem to say her full name a lot, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like in case you they definitely hit that hard for us, aren't she? She's a very famous person. When she's leaving, like Nora Ephron, your name is all you have. Good luck. It's that is a little on the nose. Like, Very on the nose. Yeah, she's the one element where I'm like, that's going forward. I'm not clear how she would be incorporated into the show based on how this ends. I feel like she's a little bit of a loose thread, but I'm sure that they could, you know, find a workaround for that. Even just somebody like Joy Bryant, who I really liked on Parenthood, but was very underserved there, pops up here as uh, sort of the leader of the uh, the meeting that they go to. Uh, that's a raising consciousness kind of meeting, is what they how they. Were refer to it but it's basically a hey feminism yay meeting which is nice uh you know I, and so it'd be nice if she's gonna be if she would be on the show and get some things to do that'd be a nice change of pace she always nailed it when she got stuff to do on parenthood um but even just like you say having multiple perspectives female perspectives on a show like this is something that it's an opportunity rarely afforded the actors and maybe who knows, maybe the writers, depending on notes, depending on, you know, creative, um, who has the creative control on, on a show like this, but it, that is incredibly refreshing. And, um, yeah, when, when we're still in a television landscape where a disproportionate number of shows have like the, the three to one or four to one gender ratio, mm -hmm. um, it's just wonderful to have a show that feels so much more balanced. Yes, there are more, women than men but there are also several different male characters who all get to have their own perspectives and pretty much all have their own inner lives and they're not all uh there to be antagonists and keep the ladies down um it seems like as much as you can get in a pilot and it is as we said have said it's a very piloty pilot um it still feels like there are inner lives going on or that could and would be explored should it continue. So I like the time, the, the setting. I have not read the book upon which it is based. Um, so I, I, when Nora Ephron shows up, I was like, ah, oh, huh, yeah. I should probably know this. And I don't bad on me. Uh, but I did really like it. The setting is fun. And the, um, for the most part, it feels like, the, the, like the, the, most of the characters don't feel like they're playing dress up. A few do, but most of them feel pretty comfortable in the time and the, the setting and everything. So, um, yeah, I, I really hope it gets picked up. 
Yeah, and I think it's nice because it's it's obviously got the feminism stuff baked in, but it's also just like sort of a classic uh, reporter, you know, a, a story of how reporting gets done and specifically how it got done in the 60s when there was, I'll say, a little bit more journalistic integrity and they're actually concerned with things like, do we have, you know, credited sources that aren't just random people on the street, which is interesting to think about now when like a, a tweet becomes a source. Uh, we're in a very different era, but you know, I think that, that news can be, or newsrooms can be a little bit hard to depict on TV as like the newsroom showed, but you think about like all the president's men, like I feel like a lot of our, our best movies sort of center on news and hopefully good girls revolt can, that can be another inroad for people who maybe like the idea of just a show about feminism isn't the most interesting to them, but maybe that news stuff will be a hook. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and then it doesn't feel like it's a a lecturing show. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Important balance to strike. Well, what did you think of this week's Law and Order SVU? And uh, how what has the show been like? And I used to I've seen every episode just about of original yeah. recipe Law and Order um, just via marathons. And I've seen a lot of SVU, but I haven't really watched in the last couple of seasons. So where's the show at right now? And what did you think of this episode? Yeah, well, I have the weirdest relationship to SVU. I, for some reason, I feel like everyone and their mom, like what you do when you're just sitting at home, you flip on the TV and Law and Order's on and you watch that. And I would do that with regular flavor. I wouldn't, I kind of like specifically stayed away from SVU because obviously this is a show that like the whole purpose of it is really to, to, exploit like or not exploit well maybe exploit is to focus on sort of sexually related crimes and part of me was just like oh that sounds so skeevy and I just want to stay away with it stay away from it and finally my little sister was like listen like this show is actually good you should watch it and so she kind of she would be watching it and I would join her and I just got obsessed and now I like seek it out I watch it on Netflix like a crazy person like who watch who seeks out Law and Order on Netflix only me um, but I think it's, it just treads the, 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 the weirdest line between, on the one hand, it is really exploitative. And there are moments where I'm like, ooh, I wonder who's going to get raped today before I click an episode, which is like a horrific thing to be looking for in a TV show. On the other hand, the way that it is openly discussing rape culture is not like anything else I've seen really anywhere, let alone on network TV on an incredibly mainstream show. And I think Olivia Benson is one of the most incredible characters, you know, female characters, or probably just characters in general that's ever existed. Like, she has just become increasingly important in my life. Um, so anyway, I feel like I'm having all of these revelations about SVU that everyone had, like, 10 years ago, and I'm I'm just really cramming them all in now. And it's interesting to watch this show. Obviously, like, Stabler's no longer around. This feels like a different era for the show. I feel like it's, you know, maybe a cast that's not familiar with, to people who haven't been keeping up with these new seasons. And I don't know, I, I, you, you can tell this is a show that's been around for a long time. Like this, this maybe not have the freshness of other seasons, but I do, I think they're doing the smart thing where they're, they keep introducing new people to the precinct who are not as familiar with like the, the idea of rape culture. And a couple seasons ago, they had this new character named Carisi who would very much be like, I don't know, like it, should we trust this woman or do we believe her story? And so the show was able to have Olivia say things like, you know, we should always, we should always believe the victim first and foremost, or just kind of explain these basic tenets in a way that felt more organic when, you know, 
there's no reason for them to kind of be discussing that if it's just the people that have been around. And they just brought in a new sergeant who's kind of the focus here, played by Broadway's Andy Carl. Um, this was, this was again, like, kind of a weird episode. It was actually mostly focused on, like, a DNA trail. And it felt more CSI-y than Law and Order-y. Um, so, yeah, this this episode was not, like, the the best from my point of view. Last week was a, like, a Duggar-centered episode, a rip from the headlines about a Duggar family, which was actually pretty decent and not as exploitative as I thought it would be. And they had an incredible line where you have this new sergeant character I, I was talking about who... It's kind of like one of his first cases he solves with SVU, and he says, you know, they end up sort of, it's it's not the Duggar brother, or the reality TV brother, in this case it's the priest who's, or their pastor who's, to, who's uh, had been raping these young girls, and um, the guy, the sergeant guy is kind of like, oh, I was expecting to be taking criminals off the streets, not, you know, out of churches, and Olivia just says, but that's because most rapes don't happen in the street, they happen where there's trust, and that's how these relationships, you know, turn into something bad. And that, like that line to me, the idea that that line was said on a mainstream show just blows my mind. Cause I feel like as a, as a culture, we're not really having conversations about, or as many conversations as we should about sort of what rape actually is and where it's most likely to occur. So yeah, I, I really think that that it's, it's just great that this show exists for all the problems I have with it. Cause you get lines like that, that are just really important. I think. Well, and again, there's a lot of shows. There's a lot of shows uh, on TV currently, but also in reruns, because these seem to be the types of shows that do very well in rerun, where you get uh, sexual assaults and victimization as a instigating factor of an episode, Mm -hmm. and with shows that do not have that perspective and shows that are happy to have it be random bad guy in, in, uh, or bad lady, uh, in uh, alleyway. Yeah. And not the true nature of, if you're going to go specifically to rape where it's overwhelmingly, uh, acquaintance rape or, or a trusted member uh, of, of the, of one circle. So to any show that's counteracting, trying to like have a conversation, I will be glad that it's, that it's there. And, and I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen SVU new episodes of it in quite a long time, at least a few years. Uh, for me, it is still in my head. It's, it's Benson and Stabler and totally. Finn and, uh, and Munch and, Munch, yeah. and like, yeah, Dan- Finn's still around. So you can still- enjoy Ice T's bizarre line delivery every week. <laughs> um, and Dan Florick, you know, Cragen, um, as the captain, uh, but, so I can't really speak to what it's been doing the last few years, but in general, when it, the part, you know, there's a lot of the show that engage with Stabler and his rage and, you know, the, that conflict of masculinity and doing the thing that I know some of our, uh, friends of the show have written very, um, meaningfully and beautifully and pointedly about, you know, taking rape and making it about, uh, about masculinity, mm-hmm. rape stories about masculinity rather than about, um, exploring the victim and their story. Um, but when it has, when it wasn't doing that, when it wasn't centered on Stabler, when it was centered more on Olivia and these other characters and the case of the week, it tended to be always very respectful and, uh, and thoughtful. So, um, yeah, I'm not surprised 
to to hear what you're saying and and it's a it, if the show is promoting the these topics even more than it did when I was watching it more regularly then that's a great thing. And I think it's nice now that um you know Mariska Hargitay is like undeniably the star of this show. I think in the early days it was more of an ensemble feel, but now because she's the longest running cast member and like she's such a hit, like it really does feel like she's at the heart of it, which I think is nice and it does sort of maybe take away some of the issues we might have had, you know, with Stabler not always being used the best. And and it just feels like it's all channeled through her perspective, which is really cool. And like I said, she's just incredible. But I have to give NBC one million props for potentially, this was the, like, the network with its previews, obviously with previews, like you always sort of, you don't tell the full story. This I have never seen a network troll its audience as much as it did with the preview for this week's episode that aired last. You know the preview that aired last week. The preview was like Olivia has that she had adopted a child, so she's a like a three year old kid now. And the preview was all about like Noah's going missing. She's at the park. He's gone. Heart wrenching episode. The baby's lost. What are we gonna do? And I was like, okay, here we go. It's gonna be so dramatic. That is literally the cold open, and she finds him at the end. He was just in another part of the playground. That has nothing to do with this episode at all. They straight up trolled us so that we would feel the fear that Olivia felt when we, we were I, when Noah went missing. I was like, here it is, kidnapped, ready to go. He was just around the corner with trucks. I literally could not. I I mean, that probably should win my week in comedy just because it was <laughs> like so hilarious that they just I don't know. They just they just lied to us, and I kind of love them for it. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, any final thoughts on SVU? No, yeah, I would say worth watching. If For anybody who's kind of tuned out and, like, a lot of people just check out the reruns, like, there is enjoyable stuff going on here with the new with the new cast, even though it doesn't maybe quite feel as fresh as it used to. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to talk briefly here about The Leftovers, A Most Powerful Adversary, because, damn, that's how you end an episode. Uh, this episode really centered on uh, Kevin and what he's going through right now and um, and and brought the Patty being in his head relation in him and his interactions with Patty to the forefront. Um, I loved that they had Kevin tell Nora in the previous episode. And this week he wakes up after telling his his uh, live in girlfriend um, that he talks to a dead person regularly and she tells him to do stuff and he that's why he sleepwalks and doesn't remember stuff and everything he wakes up uh handcuffed to the bed uh which is something they've he've been handcuffing um themselves together so that way if he won't sleepwalk because she'll wake up and then he'll she'll wake him up and then it'll be fine so he wakes up handcuffed to the bed. The key's nowhere in sight, and she's gone, and she says, don't call me. Uh, and so that pushes things to a head. I love that that was the response they gave her, because that feels like, you know, maybe the initial response most people would have would be like, okay, we need to get you help. But that also feels like a very legitimate response. I'm taking the baby. I'm taking the the um, sort of uh, comatose person in my care, and we're leaving because you're dangerous. Uh so this really focused on him and pushed him to a breaking point. They brought Amy Brenneman back for this week and I can't wait to get the next episode that centers on her and Tommy, her character and Tommy. Um, Cause that's going to be fascinating, but uh, they really explore Kevin in this great way in this episode and the way that it ends pushing him to the point where he is willing to drink uh, this concoction that he gets from as, as they, 
as they lampshade very effectively and entertainingly the the borderline racist uh magical black man on the outskirts of town um and that like the way the episode ends it's really it's really intense and i love that damon lindelof because um, it ends with you don't know if a character is foaming at the mouth and probably dying if not dead um one of the main characters caroline and they end with somebody showing up and taking them away. So presumably taking them to get help and they're going to be fine. Some version of fine, I would anticipate is what's going to happen next time we see them. But Damon Lindelof um, had a, was reached, they reached out to him for comment. And so his comment is delightful and like three sentences long about how we will see Kevin or some part of Kevin or Kevin's jogging <laughs> pants or memories of Kevin or maybe actually real Kevin again at some point. Uh, hashtag Glenn lives. <laughs> oh my God. That's like on the level of NBC airing that trolling promo. But I was just like, I just so wonderfully self-aware because they didn't, they didn't leave the episode at oh, he's dead. They left it at, He's dead, but there's somebody who, yeah. who's there and presumably who's a good person. And presumably there's this, like, we're going to find something out. They're not trying to ask, pretend that, oh, will anyone find? You know, it's so much more uh, respectful of the audience to do it that way. And I love the, just the response of, of showing his awareness of that with the hashtag Glenn lives. Because, um, of course, he was on that episode of Talking Dead right mm-hmm. after the Glenn episode. So, um so funny yeah i was just like you know what props to damon lindelof who i have really incredible that might be the best thing he's ever done (laughs) yeah he's i i really enjoy damon lindelof um his his panel about the leftovers with some of the cast and mimi letter at uh austin television festival was absolutely one of the highlights of the festival for me last year and uh I enjoy little things like that. So this was a really uh, intense episode, some really great performances, and I cannot wait to see what comes next with these different storylines that we've left off. But for now, we've, we're going long, so I got to move us on because we got to talk Grey's Anatomy, something against you, and I'm going to need you to answer so many questions, Caroline. I'm ready. I have not watched for years. So Derek, uh, okay, spoiler alert, anybody who is – behind on Grey's Anatomy by like a half a season and also something. living under a rock and, and living under a about rock. This somewhere else yeah you've been warned look in the show notes click you know if you have the M4A click click ahead to the next chapter we are talking full spoilers Grey's starting now okay so I'm assuming that this redhead who is with Callie yeah, um, Penny. Penny contributed to the botched surgery that killed uh yes Okay, killed McDreamy. So, uh, what else is going on? Like, I, I had so no context. Much. Yeah, no, understand. But I still so, enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, so, so Grey's Anatomy is like the show I will never give up on. Like, I am probably one of the only people that is still watching the show regularly. I love it. It's one of those things where, the, like, the cool thing about TV is that I have been with these people for 10 years like I think we're on season 11 or something and so when they reference history like there was one episode like oh yeah remember that time Izzy did this and I was like I do remember that because I watched that eight years ago so I know exactly what you're talking about um so yeah we've come a long way and I'm glad you brought up the penny thing because I am really interested in terms of like what the show is doing now and why it's still you know if it's still worth watching I do think that obviously the the killing off of Derek Shepard aka McDreamy was like such a big deal last season and such a big deal not on the, only on the show but sort of in the media as well and the show I think I mean I think that they made the decision for like 
interpersonal behind the scenes reasons. And I'm interested in how they're sort of dealing with it creatively. And they, they basically covered that by, so yeah, Penny was involved in that. She, it wasn't fully her fault. She didn't push hard enough for like a head CT. And so he ended up not getting it and he died because of that. And Meredith had a really uh, intense speech to her where she was like, don't let this mistake stop you from being a doctor because my husband's death should not like you have to make my husband's death worth worth something, so you need to push yourself to be a better doctor now. And so she was just in that one episode. No one really thought she was going to be back. And we had an episode after Derek's death that one episode covered a year in their life. And so we kind of jump ahead from the grieving. And for the most part, the show has been more interested in how Meredith is recovering than exploring her grieving. And so the back half of last season after Derek's death was mostly the road to Meredith's recovery. This season started like really Derek's death was not a huge part of it. It really felt like Meredith was stable. She was okay. She was not in a place where she was looking for more romance, but we have like a stability. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting way to handle this. And and it's all going along fine. And then all of a sudden there was, I think two weeks ago, maybe last week, they have a dinner party and Callie is dating this girl who was involved with Derek's death and she uh, brings her to the party and all of a sudden, it was a really incredible episode. I wish that that, I wish that we had watched that one because it was far better than, than this week's. But Was that the 250th episode? Yeah, I think it might have been. I, I heard and, so much buzz. Yeah, yeah. And there was barely any scene set at the hospital. It's almost all at Meredith's house in this dinner party and it was this incredibly tense really sort of like mold breaking episode where Meredith recognizes Penny right away but like doesn't say anything to her and Penny thinks she recognizes Meredith and you're essentially just watching Meredith break down silently while simultaneously trying to keep it together in this dinner party and this idea of grief hitting you not when you expect it to is is a really cool concept and again it's like it's nice that Grey's Anatomy have so much time to play out and I think it makes it feel more authentic and that we had those episodes where it seemed like everything was fine with Meredith and to all of a sudden watch like, oh, and then one thing switches, I see this girl again and now I'm not okay. To watch her fall apart like that is such an interesting way to handle this and I think it's cool. It felt so unexpected to me as an audience, which I think is like reflecting what Meredith is going through. So that stuff I'm all really interested in now the big drama is like how Meredith and Penny now Penny is working at the hospital with everybody else and so they're kind of how Meredith is dealing with her is sort of the big drama for now and I don't know if that is you know if they're handling that in the most interesting way but just the idea of of sort of grief hitting you in unexpected places I thought was such a cool concept for this show to explore yeah and and something that they have done really well at various times in the show's run because I I haven't watched Grey's in a while but I've seen at least i'm gonna say at least eight full seasons of the show if not yeah. more than that um but um yeah the other thing i need to know before i get sidetracked is what went why cali and arizona they're like one of my forever couples i know like well here's i think the real reason they're not they got yeah. a divorce now but I, honestly, I think that the reason is because there aren't, there's pretty much, they're the two lesbian characters. So like when the show wants to have them have drama, like they just have to split up and get back together and split up and get back together. Yeah. And then, um, so I think that, I mean, they've split up so many times over the years. I can't even remember why they're most recent. Like they had kind of, I remember at one point they got to the point where you think everything's okay. And then Callie was unexpectedly the, who had been fighting for the marriage was unexpectedly the one that was like, we have to get a divorce now. And so it is, it's, I'm glad Penny's on board so that we just, it doesn't feel like the only option is to split Kelly and Arizona up. I couldn't really tell you why they're split up now, other than the fact that the show, you know, needs some relationship drama. So I'm kind of bummed about them too, because I always really like them together. I still feel like they're probably end game for the show when uh -huh. and if it ever ends. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're really great. Although it is, I, this week we get, well, and this is another thing I wanted to say about Grey's Anatomy. As much as it's always billed as like a romantic drama, I actually think what's most impressive is how well it gets friendships. It just does friendship really well. And we get this great scene at the end where Arizona wants to go out and, and sort of, you know, meet a girl at a bar and she talk she, the chief or the former chief Richard Weber overhears her and he kind of invites himself along to what he thinks is a trivia night and she has to admit to him she was just there to meet girls and he instantly snaps into being like an amazing wingman is like okay well, what type of girl are you into I'll go talk to one for you and um like that is not the Arizona Richard like they've never had a relationship really the specific one but like the show is so great at getting that little friendship and we really see it this episode with Meredith and Owen Hunt who uh, was the guy who was dating Christina, Sandra Oh, before she left the show. And so they've kind of, Meredith and Owen are like the two most important people in Christina's life. And he's kind of freaking out because there's a new person at the hospital who seems to sort of like bring up his PTSD. And we just, there's a really great scene where she comes out and she's just like, you know, I told Christina I would look after you. So you don't need to tell me what's going on. But like, should I hate this guy for you? And he's like, yeah, you should hate him. And she's like, okay, I hate him. And just like that little depiction of friendship is so nice and so subtle on a show that is not always the subtlest. And so, yeah, I really appreciate how they do friendships. Yeah, that that scene by the by the ambulance, yeah. absolutely love it. And and because you know, like Meredith is can be a very happy go lucky person. She can be she can be many things. Mm-hmm. But when she she's serious, when she's intense, she can cut a bitch. Yeah. So oh, for uh, sure. I loved that. It's like I will hate this person for you because. That is a th- like because that's we, friendship. Like, that that's is how we close do. we are. That like some of the other people, she because she also rolls her eyes a lot at, at the a lot of the drama mm-hmm. and, and various things that are going on. But it's like somebody is screwing with you know she's got her list of people, and I love I love the show's um, respect of friendship and like the thing that they started so long ago with um, with Christina and and Meredith of you're my person, mm-hmm. which is something I feel like more and more shows it's sort of become part of the popular culture more and more and more shows have adopted that sort of approach too. And even just in maybe I feel like that's one of the things from Grey's Anatomy that's really seeped out into the you know, pop yeah. culture consciousness. Um, so I, you know, I, I love that when we get there and then the, the, the uh, elevator scene where she goes, goes like, yeah, you're trying to be nice and charming and everything. And I don't care because I'm friends with Owen. So yeah, goodbye. Yeah. You might be a lovely person. Maybe he's in the wrong here, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, I feel like Ellen Pompeo deserves more credit for what a lovely yeah. performance she gives as Meredith. Like I kind of just take it for granted because she feels so natural in the role, but she's really great. And the, the one other thing quickly I wanted to discuss is that this Grey's Anatomy has, has always been a show that's incredibly diverse, both racially and in terms of having a lot of female characters, but it never really makes, it's never really made a big deal about it. And this season, I feel like for the first time, they're really sort of embracing the idea of feminism and like discussing racial issues more openly than they ever have in the past. And I think that's really cool, especially because the show doesn't go to that well a lot. So we get this week a big, uh, like a, a really pointed speech, actually. Um, from a black character to a white character who's worried she's accidentally been racist and like it does feel very pointed and like the writers are clearly speaking through her and yet because the show does this sort of speech so infrequently to me it was very earned and again it's like SVU like it's cool to hear these sort of things on a really mainstream platform because I'm not you know as much as they are getting discussed in certain circles I'm not sure they're always getting discussed in a, in a fully mainstream way so I really like that we have a, a couple different discussions this week about how women are treated in the workplace and some good jokes about how like 
you know, all guys are just so assertive and they want to, they just assume that they're the best. And Meredith jokes to Alex Karev that she's had to train him over the years to not just like assert his masculinity all the time. And we do get this discussion of the idea that, I mean, they don't call it intersectionality, but the idea that like, yeah, if you're a black woman, like not only like you're facing a lot of, you know, distrust from, from multiple sides here. And so because the show does it so infrequently, I think that it it's stronger for it. And it's nice to see the show embrace that part of itself a little bit more this season. I loved that subplot about the intersectionality uh, issues that come up with, with feminism and with that one item, I don't know her name, that one doctor's experience. Um, the way that that scene, that dinner around the, you know, around the yeah. island or whatever uh, scene goes and switches so quickly from all the women, you know, talking to, you know, having shared that experience and supporting each other and, you know, yay, feminism. Uh, and sucks that we have to deal with this stuff to so quickly add a dime be like, oh, no, that's not. But that's not really. Like, I yeah. love that. It, and it doesn't feel like they're throwing that character under the under the bus. I mean, maybe a little bit. But it it's it feels very, very honest because I know that intersectionality for a, a lot of people who are fully on board with feminism will say we'll hear read an article maybe like mo ryan's fantastic piece in variety this week everybody go read it if you haven't yet about uh about diversity in television directing and how particularly uh women of color directors there's like none like there's in diversity for a lot of studios a lot of networks basically means black men and there's still very little of them. But if you're not a black man, you're really not going to get it. Like percentage wise, you're not breaking through. There's charts and graphs. Of course, I love this article. <laughs> um, but the, so I love how they have that character go in the same breath from yeah. being so uh, aware and thoughtful and on board with feminism to dismissing her sister's yeah. perspective and experience. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was wonderful to see it was fun to dive back in with with grays and i don't know that i'll make time for it every week but this is a show that it's in season 12 season oh, wow. 12. i didn't even realize that yeah and yes season one's like a half season but still it's it's not for everyone but it is very good at what it does and and the the again i, I keep coming back to confidence and the the comfort of this show like you say, the relationship you have with the long running show is unlike any other. Like it's, I guess books. If, you, if a series of books keeps coming out long mm-hmm. enough, you get a similar experience. But otherwise, you just can't. I cannot think of another experience like it. And it is. It, it just slips in so easy. It's like yes, I don't know what any any of these storylines are, but I know what these storylines are because I know Grace. Yeah, and it does what it does very very well. Yeah, it's the ultimate like comfort food TV show for me. Absolutely. And yeah, I, 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 I'm going to stick with it to the bitter end. <laughs> well, what wins your weekend drama then? Um, I'll give it to Good Girls Revolt, Good Girls Revolt just because I want to put out into the universe that I want there to be more of that show. So everyone go and vote for it on Amazon <laughs> for a pilot to be picked up. Very nice. And I'm going to give it to The Leftovers. Like, it's making such a hard play for my top 10 at the end of the year. Uh, it's going to be hard. I, I, I wrote out a list. I've seen over 110 se- seasons of television this year, Caroline. The top 10 is going to be insane for me, but mm-hmm. Leftovers is making a hard push. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but now let's take a break and come back with our week in genre. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest. 
This week in the genre, we're going to preview The Man in the High Castle, which is debuting on or, or premiering or dropping or whatever on Amazon this Friday. I'll talk a little bit about the pilot to Into the Badlands. Caroline's going to talk some Walking Dead, Always Accountable. And then I'll talk a little Arrow, Lost Souls. And we're going to kind of bundle together The Flash, Enter Zoom, Supergirl, Fight or Flight, and Shield Chaos Theory before we round things out with Doctor Who, Sleep No More. Uh, but first up, The Man in the High Castle. I mentioned at the start of the show that uh, it of course of course it is dropping and uh the, the same day as as Jessica Jones is over on Netflix that I'm pretty sure that it's just going to get swallowed at least buzz-wise by Jessica Jones but I really hope it doesn't because I liked the the pilot uh, there's there's one scene in the pilot that really for every everybody I've talked to but def- for myself and on on the podcast we've discussed this previously um was incredibly powerful and chilling and I didn't know if they'd be able to capture that again um, I've, we've seen the first two. I think they do manage to capture that. And, and I, th- I think the second episode improves on the pilot. And so I'm actually really very optimistic about this season of, of the man in the high castle, not having read the book. Uh, I'm curious. Is that just me, Caroline? Are you excited about this one or are you more skeptical? Cause there's so many ways this show could go wrong. Yeah, I I'm excited. Watching these first two episodes, I felt simultaneously like this is one of the best shows I've ever seen, and this is literally the dumbest show I've ever seen in my whole <laughs> life. And those were existing totally side by side, somehow in my brain. And I think it's because, like, no disrespect to, to Philip K. Dick, but this is the kind of idea where this is a dystopian world in which the Axis power is one World War II, and so the U.S. is divided between, you know, Germany-owned East Coast and Japan-owned West Coast. And it's the kind of idea you come up with in, like, eighth grade, and you're like, this is the best idea ever. Like, this is going to blow everyone's mind. And on the one hand, it does blow my mind, and it's incredible. And on the other, I'm like, what? Like, this is, it's just, I don't know, it feels so juvenile, and it's so pulpy. And this is a show that I think probably makes the right choice in being very serious. It takes this premise incredibly seriously. And like I said, I do think that's the right choice, but I kind of wondered about the alternate universe in which this is, like, a pulpy show. Maybe more of that tone of how, like, the Captain America franchise handles World War II, where it's, like, a little bit heightened and not quite as serious. And this, I think that The Man in the High Castle, I hope that in the future it learn it, like, finds a way. I don't want to say it needs comedy, because it, it, like, is understandably taking this very seriously, because obviously the idea of horrific powers ruling a country... Like, that is a horrific idea, but somehow I think it could use a little bit more levity. Um, but overall, I do think the concept is so cool and the world building is so expertly done that it just makes you want to keep watching just to see what, like, how they've envisioned this world and how things kind of function in it. Uh, I wish that the leads were a little bit more charming. That might be part of the problem, too. And again, like, it is, you know, a somber thing and they're taking it very seriously, but, um, but overall, very cool, just a very cool, if silly concept, and I'm definitely excited to check out more of it. Yeah, the I enjoy Alexa Davalos quite a bit because I, you know, I I just go back to Angel and her as Gwen. I've liked her mm-hmm. since then. Um, I, I I think they do a good job of um, of making her accessible and and interesting. But I agree that there's a lot more they could do 
with levity, uh, especially I think with with her and where because of where they're at. Like there's some really serious stuff going down, but she also has a day job. So yeah, they could exactly. find levity in the day job. Like there's there are places that they could find it if if they're if they want to and are willing to. What I think they get so right is something you already said is that world building. The this show very fittingly draws on on World War II and specifically Holocaust imagery in an astoundingly powerful way. And they do it without it feeling exploitative because it would be very, very easy for yeah. for that to feel um, disrespectful and, and to feel like they're just taking the, all these, these visuals and these things we know about the Holocaust and turning it into entertainment to get themselves to, to be shocking or to be any of these other things. But they manage, uh, at least for me to, because they take those parts of the show so seriously, um, and they treat them with appropriate dread, um, they they manage to to get true power out of it and to 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 show again that's one of the things that's so so interesting and uh can be so fun about uh, parallel universe stories or, or alternate history stories it, like the what if of it like what would a world be like where this kind of thing can mm-hmm. happen and and again that respect that they show to this they they use this imagery they use the these um elements of our popular consciousness and, and our, our shared history for dramatic effect, but they, they do so fully aware of the consequences of if they get it wrong and of what is valuable and what is not. Um, and I got to say, they earned some respect for me for the way that they ended that second episode. Yeah. I think that they are making really smart choices. What I, what I like about the show, and I guess this goes back to the source material that deserves the credit for it, is the inclusion of Japan here, because I think in a lot of our, movies and and whatever about world war ii we we really do focus on europe and germany way more than we do japan and i really like the juxtaposition of how the japanese are running the west coast versus how the nazis are running the east coast i think that helps because the the nazi stuff especially just feels like and it's not the show's fault but we just have so many things about nazis and they've been used in so many you know pulpy things like indiana jones or captain america or whatever like it does feel a little ridiculous when you're like, we're walking around New York City and we're just hiling Hitler everywhere. And it's the show isn't playing it for comedy, but it's hard not to like have flashbacks to like the producers or something. And so it's nice that the Japan stuff is there because I think it's a really nice and thoughtful balance. And seeing how those two powers are interacting, I think goes a long way to just making this be like Nazis in America. Like it feels more complex than that. And I, I think it's that's a, a nice choice, which again, we should credit to Philip K. Dick, but it's nice that the show sort of like, I don't know, follows through with that in an interesting way. I also like with that female lead, the the way the show treats that character, because this is, uh, it's a period piece. It's just an mm-hmm. alternate history period piece. But um, the way that, like the, the visuals and some of the tropes that the show is playing into with that character, um, it would be easy for her to fall into the woman in trouble role. Mm-hmm. And I love that there is, there are elements of that, but they also make her much more self-sufficient than that character, that trope usually is. And I think that's an important distinction and certainly one that gets highlighted a bit more in the second episode than in the first episode. So if the, if that continues to escalate over the course of the season, it, it may not, but if it does, then I think that's a, that's another really smart choice. Agreed. Yeah, no, she's, she is good and they're doing a lot of good things in general. I feel like, 
everyone, all the characters in the show are terrible at being, they're just all so suspicious all the time. That was mm-hmm. kind of driving me crazy. Everyone is like, hi, I have something in my pocket. So I'm walking around and looking around everywhere. And, it's, and I'm like, oh, come <laughs> on. Like, what's, what are you doing? Have you never watched a spy movie? Like, don't be, cool. be so obvious. Yeah. yeah, be cool. They could all use a lesson in being cool. Uh, but I agree that they're doing things with the, the, with both actually with, with all, I guess there's kind of like three leads. Um, and there, I do think that they're all subverted in, in slightly different ways that are, that are pretty cool and makes this feel a little bit more unique. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I'm still going to watch Jessica Jones day yeah. of, <laughs> and it's going to, it has bright colors and re- really intense stuff coming for that as well. Like this is also, like you said, it's very serious. The colors are all muted. Like it's very people walking around quiet, quietly and like looking furtive. Like this is, this is a very, I think you could say this is a dour show. It yeah. is, so I get why it will not be for everyone, but when it works, man, for me at least, it really works. So I, I hope people check it out. I look forward to hearing from our listeners, uh, you know, who have seen it or when they see it on Friday, um, with their thoughts on on that. But certainly, I'm I'm excited to watch more. Me too. Next up is Into the Badlands, which had its pilot uh, or aired its first episode uh, on AMC this week. And this is the one with all the martial arts and, uh, and insane no action and lots of swords. Yeah, this uh, this is the one that people you will have heard people talking about. It. Unfortunately, I don't have anything new to really add to the conversation. So I'm just going to kind of co-sign the, the gist of what's been out there. There's some really uh, inventive and and badass for lack of a better word, action sequences here. I think the lead is strong. I think, I mean, I'm just so glad to see Orla Brady in anything. I loved her so much on Fringe as alt universe, Peter's mom. Um, and, and she's, I just like watching her think. I, I just like seeing her on screen. I always enjoy her. So she, because she's in the role, I'm more interested in her character than I normally would be. I really am not interested in the magical kid or the, um, the petulant son of the Baron. Um, there's a lot of this show that I just am not interested in. I don't think I'll keep up with it as much as I do love a badass fight scene. Um, people, apparently some people have been complaining that the martial arts, uh, it's not realistic. Like, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, they punch somebody and then they fly back. Um, but guys, this is what we're getting hung up on. Cause there are lots of things <laughs> that aren't realistic in our television. Um, I mean, zo- zombies and one of the highest rated shows on, on TV that, everybody watches um as a talking about a percentage of the viewing populace that's doesn't bother anyone i don't know why non um physical you know martial arts that break the laws of physics i don't know why that's a deal breaker for some people but for me it's really not um the deal breaker for me is that as colorful and uh, developed as this world is it's decently developed I'm not invested in the characters and for the t- way that I watch television, which is not how everybody watches television, that that becomes a, the deal breaker for me because I can watch shows that have badass fight scenes where I do care about the characters. So uh, if, if I'm looking for a badass fight scene and I, I'm going to just like pop in my Spartacus DVDs and uh, and get my fix that way uh, rather than watch something where I don't where I'm not invested in the people. So maybe it'll improve over the course of this. I think it's just like a mini series, like six episodes or so. And if it does, please let me know, listeners. Uh, but for right now, Sundays are crazy as it is. So I do not anticipate watching more. We'll see what happens with it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully if it gets more interesting character wise, y'all will let me know, but let's move on to our next show. And that's walking dead. I'm going to stay out of this because there's a whole separate pop up day walking dead podcast. Y'all will get my thoughts on, but Caroline, what did you think? I thought this was a, 
pretty solid episode. Uh, the Dar- we're, We followed Daryl and Abraham and Sasha this week, and the Daryl stuff worked way better for me than the Abraham-Sasha stuff. I felt it was all slightly misguided, a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too familiar. I think at its best, the show sort of uses these post-apocalyptic landscapes, like old towns where sometimes they'll stumble upon that or cities or whatever. It can use those really creatively and interestingly. I don't think it really did that this week, which is kind of a bummer. I can't say I'm really looking forward to an Abraham, uh, an Abraham, uh, Sasha relationship potentially. None of that particularly worked for me, but the Daryl stuff I thought was really strong. And it's really nice to see Daryl back because the way this season's been structured, he's sort of barely been in it. And this had, I mean, Every time there was a commercial break, I would just go, oh, my heart, because Daryl just, <laughs> I just love him. Like, they've done such a cool thing with that character, and I loved, like, I think the standout moment for me was when he goes to return this group's insulin because he realizes they need it, and yet still demands they give him something, just sort of, like, on principle. He's like, I really don't care what it is, I just have to feel like this is an even trade and not just me being nice to you for no reason. So I thought they found some nice shadings with Daryl stuff. It's nice that we end, you know, with these characters. Like, I feel like I know where they are. I'm not panicked about any of them, which is good because with this Glenn stuff still up in the air, I think it's it's good not to have too many other dangling threads. Yeah, that's a good point uh, about Glenn. And that was a fun scene. And in, in putting character in, too, where, like you say, where it's not just... I'm giving this back to you because I'm Daryl and I'm, I'm fan favorite Daryl Dixon. This is what yeah. I do. Uh, that, that was, that was nice. And um, yeah, I will talk about this more on the pop optic walking dead podcast soon in your list, in your feeds listeners, if it's not already there. Uh, but I'm going to move on to arrow lost souls. And I wanted to mention this. I wasn't going to mention it this week. Um, I wasn't planning to, but then I watched the episode and Felicity spends pretty much the whole episode after she finds out that, that, <gasps> Uh, main character in the spinoff, Ray Palmer, is still alive. Who would have thunk? What a shocker. <laughs> yeah, she spends pretty much the whole episode freaking out because she went on vacation with Oliver and Ray had been trying to reach out to her that whole time to let her let her know that she was that he was still alive. So she spends basically the whole episode freaking out about how she feels like she has lost her identity and herself in how she has been, like that her relationship with Oliver, that she is, that she can she be herself and who the person she wants to be and who she's always been and be true to herself while she's with him? Or is she just betraying all of that because he's so pretty and she loves him so much and all of that. So I love that they spend a full episode on that conversation and bringing her mom in for a few scenes works well. That's a fun character. And and I don't really love how they end the episode with her, maybe the mom and, uh, and Captain Lance starting a thing. But I do really like, the conversation and the, the the show basically having Felicity speak for the audience and say, I was acting super weird all last season where I was crying all the time and like obsessed with Oliver and not myself. And that is, that is troubling to me, Felicity, just like it's troubling to all of <laughs> the viewers. So I love that they did that. And um, also Echo Kellum is great. Very glad uh, that he is such a presence this season. And I also really like Brandon Routh as Ray Palmer because he's such a dork. Whenever yeah. you let Brandon Routh play dork, he's great. So um, I, I, I enjoy that he's back. Hopefully now that they've got the pieces lined up, we can just have the spinoff and Arrow can just be its own show instead of spinoff fodder. But um, but I like that stuff. I think it's working much better than some of the stuff with um, with Sarah and, and the other spinoff elements that have been set, set up. So uh, yay, Felicity, talking about how she wants to be 
herself and and them having that conversation without blowing up their relationship i think is also really great so uh very glad to have had this episode of arrow lost souls now we're going to talk about flash supergirl and shield kind of all together have more of a freeform conversation which one of these stood out most to you this week caroline to me it's definitely the flash i thought this was a pretty great excellent or pretty pretty excellent episode of the flash um the, mainly for the ending where we finally get our first um, taste of Zoom. But really throughout, it's like a fun episode where we get Linda sort of pretending to be Dr. Light and like tons of really great comedy there. And, um, you know, like in the best nonsensical way that The Flash is. Uh, but the Zoom ending, God, it gets so dark. This is like one of the darkest things that The Flash has ever done. You just get, I mean, Barry just, like I'm pretty sure we watch his back just snap in half like this is some dark stuff and you get zoom parading him around like he's some little puppet you know corpse almost even though he's he's alive but like he's just parading him around and and really just seems totally invincible and it's cool i didn't expect that that this we would get such a zoom showdown this first episode and it's they've done an excellent job of making zoom feel like a massive massive threat so i was um yeah i was really impressed with flash that that was my my standard amongst these superhero things this week well and credit to tony todd great voice work Mm -hmm. as i mean he's got such a great voice um as zoom and yeah like you said this it really feels like bane breaking batman's back kind of level uh and because so much of the rest of the episode is so lighthearted that that makes the the turn all the more effective it's a good way of highlighting because even with reverse flash last year and and stuff with it with harrison wells um it felt more like they were equals and this is no he just throws them around like a doll and that i think is an important when you have two villains first reverse flash and then zoom that feel in some ways so similar i think it's an important thing to establish no this really is a different and new threat and having having him throw back the lightning bolt is incredible oh it was so good it was so good um the rest of the episode um my only thing was flash and and it's a little bit with uh with, with supergirl too we'll talk about that uh but can we stop telling everyone barry is the flash like i get why he does it here <laughs> Um, and I loved Linda's reaction of, oh my God, I've made out with a flash. I yeah, that was to, great. I don't even know how to process this. Um, but I, I, like, I, I'm fully on board for, like, on Supergirl having everybody know who she, all the important pieces, you know, everybody knows who she is and ev- they all know who knows and everything. Cause that just saves us time and we can skip over the annoying part of the story while we wait for everybody to find out. Um, however, do we need to have Jimmy Olsen screw up and say Clark, sorry, James Olsen, yeah. screw up and say Clark, which he never would. That's so contrived by the writers. Yes, Jeremy Jordan's, oh my God, Clark Hunt the Superman was great. It's super fun in the background of that scene, but it just felt so contrived. I think you either need to like tell everyone or tell like very few people and, um, I guess the flat, uh, Supergirl maybe is a little bit better. I'm kind of a fan of just it being out in the open. And what's frustrating about the Flash is that everyone knows except for like Barry's romantic lead, like, and that's what they did last season with Iris, and that's what they're doing now with Patty. It's like if you're gonna tell Linda this casually, then just tell Patty too. Like, there's no reason to keep her in the dark. That's what's so frustrating to me is when there's the one character who's always saying the oblivious things because she doesn't know. And so, yeah, the Clark Kent moment was a little bit, a little bit contrived and silly, but I do kind of like the idea of like, okay, well, you know, Supergirl trusts him, so I'll just trust him too. Maybe if they had played it less like James let it slip and more like he was just 
intentionally telling it, it would have been better. But yeah, it kind of speaks to just Supergirl this week. It, I mean, I really like Supergirl. I'm reviewing it now for the AV Club, and and I'm, I I find so many things to like about it. I understand why they felt they needed to address Superman so directly this week. I'm not sure it was that necessary. Like, personally, I wouldn't have been that bothered if I was just like, okay, he's in Metropolis and, like, whatever, he's not here. But I do think that they did a fairly good job of executing what they clearly thought was important, was that establishing why Superman is not constantly going to be coming and helping Kara every week because she really wants to, you know, forge her own identity. I thought that the little their little eye-chatting at the end was, was actually surprisingly sweet and, like, nice that that she can now officially, hopefully, be out from under his shadow, and, and we're sort of done with that, is my hope. Um, but we'll have to see how it plays out over the next couple weeks. That worked way better for you than it did for me then, because it just felt so, again, so contrived, where we want to have them talk, but we can't show an actor, Yeah. when what we need to do is just show an actor. But, um, I mean, she types on, on her computer, using her... G chat or whatever to Clark Kent and they refer to each other as Supergirl and by extension Superman. It's like, have you ever used a computer? Do you know anything about internet security? Because you are going to get hacked and like this is supposed to be secret information and you're sharing it on G chat or whatever. <laughs> are you shitting me right now? Um so for me I was much less forgiving of that. But I, I should let go of that and it just Hopefully this is the last we'll have to deal with that element to the show and they can just let Supergirl be Supergirl without the caveats and the constant worrying about Superman. Um, but, they, I mean, it could have been worse, certainly. But um, I, I think uh, this was not as interesting an episode as some of the other ones. What impressed me about, I mean, we were only three episodes in, but I'm I'm glad that so far Supergirl hasn't felt like just a procedural, which I actually think both Flash and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in their early days felt very much like, here is the enemy of the week, and we are going to finish it up and wrap it up in a neat bow. And, you know, Supergirl, obviously we had the pilot, and then in the second episode we get so much with her evil Aunt Astra, which was a surprise to me. We got her so quickly, and now, even though I wasn't thrilled with the idea of bringing in Superman, I, um, you know, it's cool that that each episode, I don't know, it just hasn't felt like here's our rote villain of the week that we're going to defeat using our powers. It felt, it feels like there's something larger happening around it, which is encouraging to me, at least. I also think that the dialogue was better this week, which was my main problem with the past two weeks, especially with um, Kara and her sister Alex. Their relationship to me so far has been like, I'm telling you how much I love you, and now I'm telling you how much I love you, and I think that that, it didn't feel so authentic, but this week, they there's just that really nice scene where they're getting takeout, and she's like, I want the last pot sticker. And, she, you know, Alex gets a drawer, and she's like, I hope you get fat. And, like, it just felt like a more genuine sister relationship. And I think that dialogue improvement was enough. Like, that was exciting enough to me that I was willing to put up with some maybe iffy Superman stuff. And uh, anytime they have the, um, you're a stick of a person. Why yeah. are you eating so much? I, I enjoy that. Like, like the little details that, that surround their daily life. Like on the flash, the fact that coffee and booze don't really work on him because mm -hmm. of his metabolism. So he drinks an insane amount of coffee. Like I, I like those kind of details that give a, a little glimpse into the, the small ways in which their life is different from other people's. Yeah. Agreed. I think that that, yeah, to me, actually that seeing how super super uh heroes use their powers like just in day-to-day -day life is more fun for me than watching them beat up bad guys sometimes yeah i concur any thoughts on shield 
I really liked this episode, actually. It was not so action-heavy. It was a lot of, like, two-person drama scenes. But I, I liked it. I thought there were interesting pairings. Um, some good work from all the actors. Weirdly, even though I just said that I appreciated that Supergirl doesn't feel like 100% procedural all the time, I actually think Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. could use more of that now. Like, that was definitely its its DNA in the beginning was just we're going to solve the crisis of the week and move on. And I, I, I think going more serialized is the right choice. But now it, all the episodes kind of blend together for me. And um, Oliver Sava, who reviews it for the AV Club, makes the good point that it's just like such a bland color palette of just like blacks and grays and you know dark colors and the you know they all just kind of sort of blend together for me and I think if there was a little bit more of a procedural element maybe episodes would stand out like obviously that one where Simmons was was trapped on a planet alone and we stayed with her perspective it was just so memorable and I think that these episodes could use something that makes them memorable as individual entries rather than just as like somewhat interesting parts of a larger story that is, you know, never going to be the most interesting thing on TV. I will also add to that, um, it really, yeah, the, the needs so much more visual energy, um, and style, even just color, like you're saying. Yeah. Um, but Constance Zimmer is awesome. I'm very glad she's on the show. Love her. Uh, not getting any chemistry between her and Coulson and they're trying so hard yeah, they work a little bit better for me, I think, but they're never, I don't know, that's not the reason I'm watching the show, you know, like, I, I actually was more interested this week in the ideological discussions between Rosalind and Daisy, um, where they both, by episodes, like, they're so staunchly on different sides of whether it's okay to sort of, like, put people in comas and try to cure them, and by the end, I feel like they both moved a little bit towards the middle, which was a nice way to handle that, where the show isn't really saying one side is necessarily better than the other, and I think that that stuff ended up being more interesting to me than the, the Coulson-Rosalind stuff did. Yeah, absolutely agree, and, um, I, I thought they also did a good job with the, with the May and, um, Andrew stuff. Andrew stuff yeah. too. Yeah. That, 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 Although when he had the line, he was like, I lashed out at them. I was like, no, Agents no. of S.H.I.E.L.D., what have you done? Grown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> definitely agree. But yeah, it's been a solid, if not particularly remarkable season for me, but for most of the episodes. And uh, I also, the last thing I'll say with this one is the little, little moments, little character moments, like, well, I'm just going to say what we're thinking. He's got a hog face. I know. Like the delivery, both, uh, you know, from the blood character as well as uh, the Nick blood character. And then Ian DeKessiger, uh, yeah. his response was like He's the delivery. So good. Fabulous. So much fun. Apparently next week is lots of Fitzsimmons stuff. And honestly, that's like 100% the reason I'm still watching this show is because I'm very invested in them as separate characters and as a pairing. So I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's talk about our last uh, show of the week then. And that's Doctor Who Sleep No More. I have very little to say about this one. Yeah, same. I liked the visual uh, approach. Didn't always work because uh, they cheated a bunch. Yeah. And that's disappointing. I, I love when this show takes visual. Like, like I love that this season, this whole season, it feels like it has a specific um, marked interest in visual style and in and and having a more distinct directorial feel to some of these episodes. But when when you have the doctor talking direct to camera because he's talking to a person, and then he just kind of trails off and stares at the camera for a little bit, it's like, why are you still looking at that person? Because that's a yeah. person. Like. And they're doing it for for dramatic effect, and that's a cheat. That's a cheat. So it took me out of it. And also, I'm sorry, it's the sleep in your... It's just, I thought it was stupid. I, I was so invested in in so much of the episode, but the turn, I couldn't, I couldn't buy the turn. 
This whole episode was just like an eh to me, which is a bummer I'm talking about this episode because I actually have loved this season of Doctor Who, which is not something I have said in a long time. But I've been so impressed with this season and the the stuff that they've done with Peter Capaldi. His performance, I think, just works so much better than it did last year. They've really, like, softened him and humanized him. And I I think they've done some really game-changing or mold-breaking episodes, which has been really cool. This just feels like a really familiar base under siege story that we've seen a million times times and their turns are, are they think that they're far more clever than they actually are not to mention the fact that this season we already had under the lake before the flood which is another sort of somewhat generic feeling base under siege and like okay maybe i'll give you one of these a season but now we've had three hours of this kind of a deal and like none of them were compelling enough um yeah which is a bummer because overall i do think that the season has been so so strong and this was an unfortunate you know not like a disaster by any means but just not a standout yeah, if you're going to do a genre show where we take away people's sleep, you need to be better than the million other versions of this that we have seen. I mean, yeah, I, I always monster. Yeah, I always go back to the X Files one, which was it's such a really good. I mean, doesn't that actually that one has Tony Todd too, as I recall, the X Files episode where they have soldiers who um, have oh, had an experimental yeah, yeah, yeah. treatment to remove their sleep. And it's, it's a really strong episode, the X-Files. Um, so you got to do something different or better than the many other times that people have said, what if you didn't need to sleep? Yeah. And, spoiler and Star alert, Trek Next Generation has done one too. Exactly. It never goes well. And yeah. it always goes <laughs> wrong in about the same way. Um, so yeah, it would be nice if it was more memorable. If, if the story was... Uh, memorable enough to match the the visual and the the having a different approach yeah, to that the, like yeah. found footage style yeah well then what wins your week in in uh, genre maybe i'll give it to the flash just because you know i don't know if it was the the very best episode overall but that zoom ending was i mean to me potentially one of the best things the show's ever done so i'll i'll give it to that and I'm going to give it to Man of the High Castle. Um, and if we're talking just TV from this week, I, I think I'd give it to actually uh, Walking Dead. But uh, but yeah, I, I'll give it to Man of the High Castle. And I look forward to people's thoughts on that. So now we'll take a break and come back with uh, our chat on this season of Project Greenlight. I want to be a filmmaker. The single hardest thing is to get people to believe in you. Project Greenlight is doing just that. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. It's not a reality show. We're looking to more deeply understand filmmaking. The person who will direct the movie is Jason Bateman. Within 10 seconds of getting the job. I would want to consider maybe another writer. He wanted to fire the writer. Jason has no idea what he's in store for. I haven't quite wrapped my mind around how to make this movie good yet. I don't think he's capable of even compromising. He took on something that was really ambitious. This is the battle. It has to be right. It's the riskiest season we've ever done. I think this movie has a chance to be a little masterpiece. But getting it done is a whole other thing. Are we going to be able to do creatively what he wants? We're backed into this corner. I would be a full-blown panic. Everybody take a deep breath. This week, rather than the DVD shelf, we're going to return to a season spotlight. It's been a, a while since we did one of these. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of popelectric.com, and joining me once again from the AV Club and debating Doctor Who is Caroline Sita, and we're talking about this season of Project Greenlight. Uh, so what made you want to talk about History's Worst Monster, Jason Mann? <laughs> Well, um, I, I think just that this season was was you know generated so much buzz and controversy, and I've I've actually never watched Project Greenlight before, even though this sort of behind the scenes stuff is right up my alley. Um, but obviously, I heard about all of the Damon splaining 
uh, controversy that happened in the the first episode when they're picking the director and Matt Damon sort of made the what a lot of people say is a bad argument that diversity should just be a focus in casting and not in sort of how you how you pick your behind the scenes people. Um, so that I had I had heard about, but even that wasn't really enough to make me start watching. What made me start watching was the Leisure Class aired on HBO, and I kind of watched Twitter explode with making fun of how bad it was, and my um, curiosity to see what it was all about led me to actually start the show. Um, so yeah, this was my first experience with Project Greenlight. It was an interesting one. I feel like it was... I expected to be this to be like a very one-sided experience in which I like hated Jason the whole time and loved Effie the whole time. And actually, while that overall might be true, there were actually moments where I could sort of sympathize with Jason. And I think it's to Project Greenlight's credit that they didn't, they didn't, that they found ways to hopefully, at least from my point of view, humanize both Jason and Effie a little bit, even if I can sort of like favor one side over the other in that debate. Yeah, uh, I'm full board Team Effie. Hashtag Team Effie. She's incredible. She's amazing. Um, and I love that even before she talked about this, because uh, she's talked a couple places, not very much, but um, Effie Brown has given a couple interviews about the season and, and, and everything and her experience. And even before I read those, I where she talks about how it was a very active, um, one of her reasons that she did the show was so that she could hire a very diverse cast and have that be something that people see on TV. Um, but even before I knew that, when I was watching it, it felt like almost a response to, to the Damon Splain to be like, yeah. oh, diversity only matters in the actors you cast. Well, fuck you. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a black location scout. We're going to have a black stunts guy. We're going to have uh, Asian people here and like different religions and all. I was like, it was so wonderful to see yeah that crew because it was something that i i noticed almost immediately i was like this is a beautifully diverse crew it's not just a bunch of white guys and sitting in a room which made every single production meeting stand out all the more well and it's so interesting because you know matt damon said that thing where like the diversity happens in the casting and not behind the scenes and then you know admittedly i think that they had a script originally that that was perhaps more open to diverse casting or just less specific. And what they ended up doing was throwing out that script and taking the script that Jason Mann had written about this very wealthy white family. And so, you know, Matt Damon is like diversity happens in casting and you literally have a movie that is 100% white. And so it's nice that then, that then Effie like does very purposely push for a diverse crew and like a very talented crew. Like, I don't think at any point it feels like she is, that thing that people always fear that you're just going to get like people that are incompetent just because they are diverse, but that doesn't want, it doesn't want happen at all. And you can just tell by how these people conduct themselves in the limited time. We see them that they are very talented and they have lots of different points of view for how you do these things. And um, I don't know the whole, the whole, that whole controversy in that first episode, I have still have so many questions about that because Clearly, Matt Damon, like, he's a producer on the show. He gets to sign off on this. Was that a scene he thought he came across well on? Or is he very humble and he's like, oh, I clearly made a mistake and I want the world to see it? Did they, like, I'm not sure that the show is always as smart as I want it to be about its knowledge of this stuff. And it sort of comes down to, like, it does just capture what people have said and then presents all these points of view on screen. And I don't even quite know if it knows what it always had. And I think that's why the season was like very divisive. And I would read the AV club comments on the um, reviews that they did. And, and it's very much divided between team Effie and team Jason. And there are people that hate Effie 
like with a burning passion and think that she's terrible and unprofessional. And there's a lot of people that think that way about Jason. And I don't know if the show knows. And so that is sort of, that was something I was watching and and interested in as everything unfolded. I, I absolutely don't think he realized how terribly he came across. Yeah. I think he really did think he came across, um, maybe as people would disagree, but his, his, the, the finality with which his final point is presented that all that matters is finding the best director. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, uh, I think it speaks to so much of um, the problem in, uh, well, one of the problems in Hollywood of diversity behind the camera. Um, and it, this notion of just find the best director, not find the best director for this script, right. for this project, for this story and point of view that you are trying to express. Because they hire Jason Mann because he's a good, he's the best director, they say, think, just technical director of the group. And then don't care that like they're okay with him then throwing out this, the entire script because he can't direct a good version of that script. So it's like, oh my goodness, for me, the person... The people who came across the worst were actually uh, HBO and also mm-hmm. the you know Matt Damon and Ben Affleck because they kept indulging this child and because this is his first time directing a feature film he's he doesn't know better than know that he shouldn't ask these things that he shouldn't you know throw a hissy about how he needs to shoot on film oh my god about literally every single thing ever <laughs> yeah and how that's the most important thing ever. Uh, and, and so if he, if he, that's the first thing he does, the very first thing he does is, is you can see him in the, oh my God, when he's going in and if he takes him into, was it e-film and he's quizzing the person whose job it is to do this mm-hmm. on vocabulary. Basically, you can just see the smirk in his eye where he's, he's so much more knowledgeable about this topic than, you know, fresh out of film school than somebody who th- their job is to do this. Oh my God. So you're like, I'm sure he's not intending that, Mm -hmm. but he's an inexperienced young director and the job of the mentors and the job of the producers is to tell him, I get what you want to do, but here's the thing. It's not your money. So you don't just get to have another $300,000 except the show, the HBO is the opposite of that. And so of course, and they keep indulging him over and over again. Of course he's acting like a prima donna because he's been trained by them that it works. Well, and this is where I think you get to the, like the central problem of a show like project green light, because when they, so in that first episode, they pick the director and ostensibly what they say is they want to pick the best director who will make the best film for this script that they have. But, and while they, you know, so that's what they say secretly what they're doing is trying to pick the person that is going to make the most dramatic reality show. I think the concern here is creating a compelling reality show far more than creating a compelling movie. And so I do think, even though this goes totally unstated, that they pick Jason because they know he's kind of a dick and he's going to give them a really compelling show, which like he did. I feel like this is, was an incredibly talked about season of project of project Greenlight. I almost called it project runway. Um, but if, if they had picked one of the other, people who seemed far more amiable, you wouldn't have had this like very dramatic season of television and you probably would have ended up with a better movie. And I think that that's very telling as to what Project Greenlight is actually interested in. And it is fascinating that they they kind of in that first episode, they come down between Jason and this one other guy and they had given them both a script, just a, like a 
pretty basic script to direct and they enjoyed Jason's interpretation of the material more than this other guy's and they're like oh that's good we want someone who can interpret material in a good way this other guy he made a great original story but we're not as interested in great original stories and then almost immediately they toss out the script and just have Jason do an original story in which case they could have had the other guy do that too and I don't know that all seemed very silly to me and it is so infuriating to watch Jason not only be a baby, but be a baby and then get everything, like, everything's coming up Jason all the time. He gets everything he wants. He never has to say thank you for anything. He is so entitled, especially in pre-production and post-production. And I think, to Project Greenlight's credit, and this is what made me really interested in this season, is I think they actually... Jason does not come across that poorly when they're actually filming the movie. And you get a lot of people like the HBO head and even Ben Affleck, like they come in and they genuinely seem to say like, this guy knows how to run a film set in a way that maybe past contestants haven't. And you can even tell with the actors, like sure they butt heads every once in a while, but they all seem to like him pretty well. And the crew all seems to, to like him okay. And, and I think it's telling that he is actually good at that, production aspect even though he is so 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 terrible at dealing with people pre and post production like he clicks into place during the filming and I was kind of surprised by how much I liked him during that part did you were you ever a little bit on Jason's side or were you just against him the whole time well I wasn't on his side but I could absolutely appreciate that and actually those are moments that made me appreciate Effie more because yeah. she does say he's really good with the actors and, and watching him interact with those people and, and seeing how fond the actors are and everybody who's involved in the actual production of the, 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 you know, the shooting and, and all of that seems to, you know, support him and, and, you know, they seem to have a, a functional working relationship. The breakdown really is with, with Effie and with Jason mm -hmm. and the, and like you say, all of the pre-production and all of the post-production. And I would say, uh, cause the editor clearly was losing his mind. <laughs> oh my God. That was incredible. It was like, watching him freak out was so funny. The location scout looked like she was going to punch a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like absolutely. And, and it all comes down to, to an inability to function within the structures and the, the, um, the restrictions of the pre and post production process. Cause considering he's only ever directed shorts, um, that I, and he said he's, he's never had anything but complete creative control and film, yeah. which is an insanely collaborative medium, by the way, hundreds of people involved to make anything, any kind of show, any kind of movie. Um, he says it needs to be a personal experience, which says that he's pretty much made very, um, low crew, at least on the pre and post production problem sides of things, most likely. Um, he's probably had as much time as he wants to do pre and post. Yeah. Every other time he's made a movie and that is not the case here. And he doesn't let anybody do their jobs with the location scouting. Like when she was about to lose it, I was just, again, I was so on, on board with her. Um, yeah, she was great. Yeah. And, and yeah. And like you say, they, they do do a good job of, of emphasizing his strengths and of having, you know, when Affa comes in, he says, this is, you know, it's good that he has a point of view that you need that from a director. Um, I think that's great. It would been, it would be nice to get his perspective on the shit show that was pre-production when they showed in the, mm -hmm. the house. And, and he's like, I would, I like this house in Connecticut. You're like, this is not relevant. Why are you spending your time doing that? Um, <laughs> 
you know, maybe the things would have been a little more tempered because this is a director that they all believe in that has a lot of potential, but who needs a mentor, who needs guidance. This is his first feature. And yet the way that he's being treated, and this is something that, uh, was talked about on one of my favorite TV podcasts, Extra Hot Great from pre- previously TV, uh, with among many lovely people, Sarah Bunting, who has been on the podcast a few times. Um, they talked about that over on Extra Hot Great as well. Um, he he needs help and he needs he needs some handling and he needs to be shown the ropes and that's not what happens. Yeah, it, I think it's very telling as to how things actually get done in Hollywood, which is like it's a bunch of those sort of like high-end producery guys like HBO, but also just like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon who are just kind of like, oh, we like this guy. Something about him seems good to us. Yeah, let's get him. And then he's kind of like, uh, do you guys think film's a good idea? And Ben Affleck's like, yeah, film's great. I like that idea. And then Jason here says like, I now have permission to use film when really it's just Ben Affleck. It's not his job. To, it's his job to be a yes man. And like, he has no investment in this and he can just be like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. And then you have somebody down the line who actually has to make this happen, which is Effie. And she's probably got the hardest job in this whole production. And so like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon get to be the good guy and get to be like buddy, buddy with Jason and Effie has to be the bad guy. And like, it's telling what the racial and gender breakdown of those roles are. And like how pretty much all of the people in the higher ups of power are white dudes who are like supportive of this white dude on a theoretical slash literal level. And like the person who has to, put it together is this black woman who's like more competent than probably all of them combined. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I thought that was a very sort of insightful look at how Hollywood works. And, and, you know, it is telling too, that I don't think anyone really ended up liking the movie that they produced the leisure class. Like I loved, we get all of their notes and, and Matt Damon, I think makes a really good point that like, there's just nothing likable about the lead or there's no in to him. We don't really understand his point of view. And I also loved Ben Affleck's like low key burn where he's like, Oh yeah, this isn't my kind of movie. I didn't like it at all, but whatever, not for me. And like HBO didn't necessarily seem thrilled with it. Like, you know, they didn't even end up producing something that was amazing after all of that talk about like, you have to pick the best director because he's going to make the best product. Well, Clearly, that wasn't the case. Like, whatever method they were using was not the most successful. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting, as much as it does seem sort of created to make as much drama for reality show, I also do think it is a somewhat interesting look at how Hollywood functions. Yeah, and it is very, like you say, it's very constructed. And this is a highly entertaining season of television, because I haven't said that yet, but it is an incredibly entertaining yeah, season of t- if you want an, an like if you want a villain for for you know your viewing and uh th- then go watch this because you got as soon as he shows up and he's got like he's Jack Skellington with yeah. a constantly popped <laughs> collar. Um, I'm, ugh, the first thing he does is try to fire somebody so he can bring on that that scribe of comedy and maybe maybe the writer of Boys Don't Cry is great at comedy <laughs> writing, but using Boys Don't Cry as how you sell them maybe that's not the best way to do that um i mean he's deliciously hateable yeah and yeah and who knows if what that is person is actually like the fact that so many different parts of the pre-production and post-production team couldn't stand him uh i think speaks uh, quite a bit but again this is a tv show um so they may not have made a good movie but they made a good tv show mm-hmm. um having the the various voices on the production team basically say over and over again, Hey, you know, you did a great job. I mean, we had all these constraints and it's like, okay, th- 
what other director would you say I've given you three million dollars? Yeah. Um, yeah, but great job. It, the movie's not very good. No one's gonna like it. And if this, if you were trying to sell it, it would be an utter failure. But you know, we're on camera now, so we have to be nice to you. Um, that's a bit of an interesting uh, reaction when you talk about this being, you know, because so because so much of this, rea- the show is very constructed Effie and Jason would never have chosen each other as a team um that kind of adds this level of artifice but what it reveals in these other elements these other exchanges is like when you have one of the first thing Effie says is we need to fix the female character because this is a problem and nobody listens to her when you have um and they they do later and they go I guess she was right but they kind of are bitter about the fact that she was Yeah, right. they were. They were like, to her credit, she said that first. Yeah. Um, that says a lot about gender and racial dynamics. And also just the fact that this is a first-time director who's causing all these problems. And this is a very, very seasoned uh, and successful producer. And no one's listening to her. Yeah. I do think... I I think that it's... What's nice about this season is that they... I like that they focus so much on the relationship between Jason and Pete Jones, who's the script writer. They end up having, even though they're so polar opposite, like Pete is this like very juvenile humor, sort of like, like 40 year old trapped or like a 13 year old trapped in a 40 year old's body. But they end up having this odd couple of friendship that is really so endearing and sweet and bizarre. And like, there's one point where Jason or where, where Pete comes and surprises Jason on set. And it's genuinely like very, very sweet. And I think that that, really, really humanizes uh, Jason. I kind of wish we had had a similar relationship with, I mean, I because I love Effie so much, like, I don't really have a problem with how she was presented, but just reading the comments and stuff, I do think she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and I wish maybe we had had a few more endearing relationships with her. Like, honestly, that part where she falls over and they were filming it and she just, like, cracks up was, I mean, maybe, like, the most human moment on TV this year. That was lovely. Um, but I think that that because Effie could get, she could get a little passive aggressive, which I personally enjoyed, but like, I understand why people were not the biggest fan of that. And, you know, I do think that they, they found flaws in her as well. And maybe it would have been nice if she had someone to bounce off of a little bit more because that there's that other producer guy who I never understood what he did. He basically seemed to do nothing but, like, be mad at everyone, but, like, mm-hmm. also never get the blame. Like, somehow he was always like, Effie's doing this wrong, Effie's doing this wrong. And I was like, well, what is your job? Like, you just stand here and you don't do anything? I don't know. I, he was confusing to me. Yeah, um, he produced the, the film, but he also produced the TV show. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. So that was, tells I you a know. lot. <laughs> yeah, he was interesting. Um, but, like, when Effie had the little... The little um, not the little, I don't know why I was belittling her, when Effie had the location scout to bounce off of, I thought those moments were really nice because seeing them both complain about it made both of their complaints feel more legitimate because you're like, oh yeah, everyone's agreeing that this is terrible. So maybe we needed a little bit more of that later on. I know one moment that was a big sort of divisive moment was when Effie has that conversation with Pete Farley and they, like, she, I mean, she is pretty rude to him and I think you can either read that as a total breach of professionalism, or you can read that as, oh, this is just how people in the film industry speak to one another. And sure, it sounds a little unprofessional to us, but like, this is just a little bit of a dynamic there. And I think it's a bit of a Rorschach test in terms of what you take from that scene. Mm -hmm. And I took the latter, but a lot of people took the former. And I know that that was a moment where 
Effie, in a lot of people's minds, did kind of become the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it was just hilarious comedy. The idea that, like, he got yelled at one time and, like, quit this whole show. I was like, wow, <laughs> you are literally a baby. Like, what are you, what's happening here? Is this how people live their life where you just never have to have any conflict? That's genuinely shocking to me. So I was, I was still Team Effie there, but I understand why that scene became sort of so controversial to viewers. Well, and, it was interesting to me because I parts of this I watched with my sister and um, she was uh, getting frustrated because she was very Team Effie, but she felt like the show was edited to make her the villain. Yeah. And that wasn't how I was feeling watching the same thing. So um, and maybe because I was so staunchly Team Effie, I was just not even seeing that. But she was very attuned to that. So I can absolutely having talked to her about it see where where people are coming from where they don't like that and i and absolutely that conversation with pete fairly is not a good moment for her and and i think it's a common i would say it's a combination of of those two elements you you um indicate caroline because the the talking over like talking to mark while pete fairly is talking to her on the phone is incredibly disrespectful but i do think that's probably like a normal industry thing that people do all the time um it's just jarring for because there's a lot of those big conference calls or whatever um but it's jarring to me watching it and i think the the other thing where she um is very frustrated him for um and and lashes out at him because he suggested like i will go do this thing that you already tried to do and he didn't listen to you because my opinion matters so much more than yours um which is not what he's trying to say but that's how she takes it I do think that is an overreaction and does not show her well, and uh, probably she regrets that uh, watching it. Um, but I do think um, so. So for me, that that's a moment where she's absolutely not in that conversation. She's in the wrong, even though I understand where she's coming from. So I like you mentioned this earlier that they have more shading than maybe mm-hmm. you would expect, and that did work for me on that level. Um, I can see how I don't like. They need these the people who who view Effie as the villain of the piece throughout. I think need. I would say they should explore some of their yeah. uh, some some things, and uh, because she her job, she's just trying to do her job. Um, and I think if you just like, listed the facts on a piece of paper, like removed of any personality, just said these these are the things that happened. I I think almost everybody would agree that she that Effie here is is in the right and mostly doing the right things in mostly the right way um but I mean who knows maybe not well and here's where I think I'm not aware of how much the show itself is aware of say like how biases work and and how we read female characters differently than male characters because they they very much kind of present that without comment but maybe it needed a little comment because I think later in the season when there's that another pretty tense moment where some of the crew is pretty openly aggressive to, I think it's the like eight, the assistant director guy um, where they're like, the guy's like, Oh, we're going to have a separate meeting. They're like, let's talk about it now. You're terrible at your job. And like, none of us feel safe. Like that to me was the ultimate passive aggressive, but because that's a guy saying it to another guy, it's, we don't read it as like, Oh, that was a bitchy passive aggressive thing. Whereas when we have Effie saying similarly aggressive things to P Farley, it like, it reads as more passive aggressive and, and I think a smarter show would have been able to like draw parallels between like, Oh, why does this one rile us up when this one doesn't? And maybe it's the dynamics of like Pete Farley is a very famous director. And so that we feel his insult more, or maybe it does have to do with race and gender. Like, I don't know, but it seems like 
being rude to each other is somewhat a part of Hollywood. And it's interesting to see that when it comes from a woman, like, or a black woman specifically, like people feel it more and they see her in a more negative light than maybe when it's two guys we are like, Oh yeah, they're just working out their differences. And we would never really refer to that as passive aggressive. And maybe the show could have been more aware of that. Or even just why does Effie keep, uh, why is she sensitive about having her authority undermined? Yeah. Maybe because there's this whole history of her having to deal with that, that these other people don't have any touchstone for. Maybe because when she calls rap, the director ignores her and the crew ignores her and they keep filming, even though it's going to cost them thousands of dollars to do that for every like minute that they film. She calls her job is to call rap and everybody just ignores her at one point. At least that's how it's portrayed. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why she's sensitive about having her authority undermined. Yeah, it's so hard to say. And this, again, like a a better show and like maybe this isn't in Project Greenlight's purview and that's fine. But like it is tricky because there's always going to I think any produ- producer director relationship is going to be tense because that like they are sort of approaching it from a different point of view. So I'm sure that there have been. So is that a moment where they're is that a moment where they're not listening to her because she is a woman? Is that a moment where they're not listening to her because directors never listen to their producers? Like what is at play and how do you decide? And like, those are really the questions that any woman is like going through in her head all the time. And like, Mm -hmm. it would have been cool for the show to like dig into that a little more again. Like it's not a show that's a It's about filmmaking and not about diversity. And like, I understand why they didn't totally make the whole season about that, but those are definitely questions I had. And maybe it would have been nice if the show had at least vocalized the question a little bit more and like if Pete had had this argument with a male producer and the male producer had said like I don't want to do that and they'd gotten to it a tiff would Pete have quit would he have felt as disrespected um would Jason have just listened to if Effie had been a guy that had said no would Jason have listened like these are questions of which no one will ever know the answer to but maybe it would have been nice if the show had raised them a little bit more absolutely and I would recommend anyone who's curious to seek out those uh, interviews, like she did one, Effie Brown did one with uh, BuzzFeed, where she, you know, production element, she mentions, pay attention when you're watching to who is given the task of giving giving Jason good news and who's yeah. given the task of giving him bad news. And I was always stuck with the bad news. And usually the good news was one of the guys. Yeah. And Mark again, part of that is like, good news. because they want to make a good reality. Like, there's so yeah. many factors at play so here, many factors. which is cool. And like, that's how it is in real life too. Real life is not clean cut. Like I am telling you that now I am distrusting you because you're a woman. Like no one ever says that. It's just mm-hmm. up to you to kind of figure it out. But Effie is so inspiring because she's so not willing to take shit. And like, I do sort of, even if I can see her flaws in that conversation with Pete Farley, like I, I get it. Like she felt disrespected and she just like told him and like I think that's how a lot of dudes are like dudes are like that with each other they're like I you disrespected me and I'm going to tell you and we both respect each other we move on and like women are not allowed to do that if it was me in that situation I would have been patient and and hand-holding and kind and I would have kept all my frustrations that I felt inside and that's probably to my detriment and like it is super inspiring to see her just like you know even if she doesn't do it perfectly just to be willing to stand up for this stuff I think is really cool. And in the end, because our last couple episodes or the last episode, especially is showing how frustrated everyone is by Jason in the editing room where Effie is not plays. It doesn't play as big of a role. I think that in a way, you know, I don't think the show is necessarily Jason is a villain, but because you have outside parties being frustrated with him, it does. It does just reassure the audience. Like, it's not like Effie is crazy. Like Jason, everyone struggles to get along with Jason. And so I think it helps 
him feel a little bit it if anyone was feeling like he was in the right all along hopefully those last episode or two like show some of his downside as well yeah because people are more complicated than how they are portrayed on reality shows that's just a that's a well-known fact you will be turned into a two-dimensional caricature because that is how we tell our reality show stories it's much easier that way yeah and it's interesting effie said on twitter like the last episode makes it seem like she quits the film at the end like that's kind of how they stage it and she said that's not true at all she wasn't there for that they did one day of reshoots and she didn't go to that just because she was like my presence seems to just be creating controversy so i'll skip that day but like she was there through all the editing she was there for everything so like that's a that's a clear case where the show is trying to make it seem like she left production in a huff because she couldn't take it anymore when really she just you know didn't happen to be there for one optional part of her job yeah yeah and again uh real life more uh more interesting and less interesting than reality tv in various ways did you have any final thoughts on on project green light or um or the leisure class yeah i guess i should touch on that a little more i will say you know it's not a good it's it's a bad movie. It's like 100% a bad movie. And the, really the biggest problem is that it doesn't know, it does not play like a comedy. It plays like a pretty serious family drama with one character who was like the the like crazy guy character, the crazy brother character who like just feels like he's in, been imported from a bad British sitcom and like stuck into this serious drama. It is so at odds with what it wants to be. And I think that they really hit the nail on the head in those last couple episodes saying that Jason is so focused on the visuals that he has he has no interest in the story at all. And, you know, the visuals do look nice. I don't think it would have mattered one lick if this had been filmed on digital instead of on film. Um, but you can tell that, like, he, he knows what he's doing with some of the shots and there are some interesting choices there. But, like, man, the story just does not work. None of the characters are compelling. It kind of feels like you're coming into the, like, last two episodes of a season of television in which you missed the first half or the first, you know, part where, where all the characters got developed. Like mm-hmm. I didn't care about any of these people. It was so tonally weird. Um, actually the weirdest part for me, there was like no score. And I think really, if this had had like a little rompy jaunty score, I think the comedy would have played much better. Like there were some basic things that they could have done with the footage they had to make this play more like a comedy, because like I said, it, it really, really doesn't. And like, I'm not sure why they, you know, if Jason's not a comedy guy, maybe they shouldn't have gone for that at all. Because clearly this was not, <laughs> despite the fact that he wrote the script, this was not good material for him to work with. Yeah, um, I just, I'm not surprised to hear that it's not funny. Based on everything we saw, he, Jason Mann has uh, a particular aesthetic and milieu. And, you know, like when he's talking about how he doesn't really like 3X structure and then, I hear that there's terrible structure problems, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, so uh, that doesn't mean that he couldn't direct a very good drama or yeah. a very good, you know, script by a some a more seasoned writer. But um, but yeah, that's that's I think sort of just the delightful cherry on top of all this that all this drama was to create a mediocre, highly forgettable, eighty minute movie. Yeah. I wonder what his career will be like. I don't think anyone has ever really used Project Greenlight as like a launch to an amazing career. And obviously, I mean, I do feel bad for him. Like he just really has gotten made fun of by everyone, ourselves included. And like, Mm -hmm. not undeservedly so. Like he clearly was terrible to work with, but it can't be easy to just have all of your flaws put onto screen. And I'm very curious to see what will will come of little Jason in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I mean, clearly, I think Effie comes out mostly uh, smelling like roses, at least for the people, I would guess, for people in the film, you know, mm-hmm. uh, production world. And uh, in seeing and, and again, have the statements that have been coming out from various people, parties associated with the the filming for, about Jason, about Effie, do seem much more like business as usual. This is Hollywood. Yes, it's tense. T- things get as tense on set, but that's normal, and we're all professionals here, and that kind of a thing. So we'll see. We'll see if he's able to parlay this into something else. But certainly, I had fun watching Project Greenlight. This, this is my first time watching it as well, so it was it was a lot of fun to dive in. Yeah, I might go back and watch some of the early seasons because it is a really just a fun concept for a show to see the behind the scenes stuff. If you're a film or TV fan, I think it's always nice to see how this stuff gets made. So I really enjoyed watching this and I'm glad you did too. Absolutely. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Uh, Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, so you can find my stuff at the AV Club uh, or you can just reach me on Twitter. I am at Caroline Sita. And you can reach out to me uh, by emailing theteleverse at gmail.com. You can uh, like us on Facebook to start up a conversation there. You can, of course, leave a comment on the post at Pop Optic. You can also find the podcast in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We always love hearing from people there. And then, of course, I'm on Twitter at the Televerse. So please do... You know, drop 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 me a line. Drop Caroline a line if you if you uh, are team uh, if you're team Jason. Yeah, and <laughs> let us know why. Let us know why, and if Effie is history's greatest monster to you, uh, let us know why, <laughs> uh, as well as all the rest of the this this TV we talked about this week. But thank you again one more time, Caroline, for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. And thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.